VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning in to the program. It's Wednesday, December the 14th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. And as I discussed with David Williams just prior to going live here this morning, I mean, we've been socked in solitaire for a couple of weeks. Haven't seen but five, ten minutes of the sunshine in the past couple of weeks. I know that, you know, many people will go to the catchphrase of, well, you don't have to shovel it, but boy, <laughs> it drags on and the RDF is just nonstop around here. I like to say Avalon Peninsula, pretty used to that, but many parts of the province experiencing some pretty seriously windy conditions today. So tell us what you're doing where you are. Okay. What's the prospect of a white Christmas? Does anyone even care? Again, I know I'm in the absolute minority when it comes to whether or not I like snow, which I don't mind a bit of snow. You can actually do stuff in the snow, not so much in this rain. But do people want or even talk about a white Christmas any longer? I know last year was pretty snowy through the Christmas holidays, but maybe not this year. All right, let's talk about goal scoring. Everyone loves to score a goal. I did very little of it in my hockey career, but... It was the day back in 1982 that Marcel Dion, who gets left out of the conversations about the great all-time great NHLers, so in 1982, Dion scored to become the ninth NHLer to score 500 goals. It was also today in history, 1997, that Mike Gartner, who bounced around, great player, played you know Washington, Toronto, and as a member of the Phoenix Coyotes, became the fifth player to score 700 goals. And last night, the great eight, Alex Ovechkin, scored his 800th goal. I mean, pretty amazing stuff. So they were playing in Chicago. They blasted the Hawks. Ovechkin scores three, his 29th career hat trick, to give him 800. It's an achievement that's absolutely remarkable. There's no question he's the finest goal scorer of a generation. He's one goal behind Gordie Howe, who, of course, finished his career with 801. And Wayne Gretzky, who was the all-time goal-scoring leader, he's at the top of the list with 894. But here comes Ovechkin with 800 goals. If it hadn't been for some work stoppages over his career, he might be right there on the heels of Gretzky's all-time record at this moment in time. And I think he's probably going to get it. But the best part of it last night is not only 800 goals, which I still can't wrap my mind around. So he's playing in Chicago, pretty hostile crowds in the city of Chicago. But they got to their feet and they were chanting, O-V, O-V. So they could appreciate the greatness that they were experiencing and witnessing last night. So 800 for him. And cozied up to a plate of nachos with me boys yesterday afternoon to watch Argentina advance to the World Cup final on Sunday. 3-0 win, and it might indeed be the crowning achievement in the legendary career of Lionel Messi. So if he gets a World Cup this go-around, I think it's a fair, fair conversation to be who is the best footballer of all time. People will throw around the Maradonas and the Pele's and others. Ronaldinho, one of my favorites. But Messi scored again yesterday on a penalty kick on a pretty harsh call. The other semifinal goes this afternoon. France versus Morocco. Could see France back in the final. Maybe repeat their World Cup championship of four, uh, four years ago. But I'm watching the game today. Yesterday we talked about the exploration of Sir Francis Drake. Today in history, in 1911, Raoul Admondson became the first person in his exploration team, pardon me, to reach the South Pole. Okay, back to reality. It's been a pretty busy, hard-hitting flu season. Looking around this office, and we're decimated. 
with whatever be COVID or the flu, and there's lots of cases inside my social circle of friends, all kinds of cases of flu. My buddies who have children are quite ill. It has been really quite something. I know that over the last couple of years, well, maybe beyond the last couple of years, any conversation regarding a vaccine has all of a sudden become toxic in many corners. I don't know what the uptick is or the uptake is this year on the seasonal influenza vaccine shot. I don't know how many people are getting it, but the examples of hospitalization are really quite something. There were 62 hospitalizations and 12 admissions to ICU in the latest update coming from the government in the Week 48 report. So 219 confirmed cases of influenza as of the most recent report here. So they're coming fast and furious, and the peak is, generally speaking, between the end of February and into April. But here we are in December, and it is really quite something, especially for children under the age of five. I hear those heartbreaking stories repeatedly. So anyway, I don't know what you're doing about that. But inside that world of respiratory illness and whatever other ailments people are experiencing, the absentee rate in the schools is unbelievable. Again, I don't have the numbers for every single school in the province, but the people that connect with me mostly via email to give me reports what they're seeing in their child's class. It's overwhelming. There's even some rumbles out there, and we're trying to confirm it with the district. There's the possibility, say some, that there might even be an early dismissal for the holiday season because of the amount of illness. But then, you you know, whatever the right thing to do is, I'll leave it up to you to offer your opinion, but with what's happened over the last few years and what we're seeing this year simply because of sickness and the days absent, we're playing catch-up. We really, truly are. So we've had conversations on this program with politicians and individuals about the concept of learning loss and what that means this year, what it's meant for graduates from one grade to another, and importantly from uh, grade 12 into post-secondary. So how we're going to accomplish the catch-up required this year, if the absentee rate continues on the breakneck pace that it is, is really unbelievable. And then I hear Jerry Earl from NAEP talking about the fact that whether it be with the, the numbers of people sick who are healthcare workers, the possibility to mandate work through the holiday season, even if you've had holidays approved going into Christmas. Okay, anyway, you want to take it on? Let's do it. Let's talk food. You know I love it. So the province had set lofty goals to double food production by 2022. And then lo and behold, I don't know what the advancement has been. Remember when the province put forward some 64,000 hectares of crown land for agricultural purposes? It took a long time to prepare the land for any potential person or business that wanted to bring forward a business model and start producing anywhere from cattle to root vegetables. But we're nowhere near what was the goal set. Then you talk about how much we produce versus how much we import. And then you add in, of course, what is the catalyst for the production is farms. We're losing farmland quicker than any province in the country. Here are some numbers to consider. The amount of land being farmed in this province has dropped 50.7% since 2001. That's way ahead of every other province, even inside Atlantic Canada. Nova Scotia has dropped 28.4%. Fewer acres being farmed. New Brunswick is uh, 28.3%. PEI is at 21.8%. Then you just look at the, the base numbers. In 20, uh, pardon me, in 20, pardon me, 2001, Stats kind of reports that Newfoundland and Labrador had 643 farms. In 2021, just 344. I don't know where the leadership or the guidance comes, and we know that farming is a very difficult uh, job to have. There's a lot of effort, and for the upfront costs, they're massive as well. I don't know how many proposals have been put forward in the last 5, 10 years for farming projects. 
But we're dropping farmland and we're dropping the number of farms with all this talk about doubling food production is pretty difficult to achieve when we see so few farms in operation. So whether it be the concept of community gardens or backyard farming or homesteading or greenhouses, something has to give. Again, when we see crisis happen, whether it be natural disasters or weather events, as we've seen here in the very recent past, the issues surrounding food is absolutely a crisis. I don't know how the government doesn't talk about this more. Yes, there's so many massive issues, whether it be with the recruitment and retention of healthcare workers and everything else under the sun, but people are hungry. And what are we actually doing about it? If you ask people who are work in the emergency food business, it's not the right way to put it, but you know what I mean, they say the best way to try to help people feed themselves is to give them money. Now, it becomes really contentious in political circles to talk about how this can and should look. If you look around the suite of boutique tax credits and other social assistance programs and you add it all up, it would come up to an enormous number. So there's an all-party committee struck in this province to look at various ways to talk about basic income. It was unanimous in the House of Assembly to vote in favor of striking this committee, and thankfully it's populated with members of all the parties. They're looking at a variety of models, and I don't know if there's one that's the absolute ideal model. And yes, the concept that many people will go to is that giving people money, you know, the whole tag of socialism or what have you, but food insecurity is an absolute crisis. So what's the best way to handle this? I saw someone yesterday propose that with the revelations from the School Lunch Association and how many people are unable to pay the full requested $4, is for there to be a government-funded school lunch program. The pushback was immediate on it. And with basic income, I don't think it's necessarily stereotypically insulting to say that we have to understand how people will spend the money. That's true. Like even on the federal level, with a $500 check regarding dental coverage, it's not even being attached to a dental bill. It's just being sent out in the mail. So who knows how that's going to be spent, whether it be for any dental work to be done and or to put it on your credit card or to pay a bill or buy Christmas presents. I don't know. But inside the world of basic income, be great to get an update is exactly what they are looking at, the models they're considering at the provincial government level. And yes, it will have to come with associated harm reduction policies. You know, there's long been the thought that even social assistance payments that go out the door, we don't know how it's being spent. I know it's a very meager amount of money. Same thing with basic income. So what do we do? How can we proceed knowing that the money is going where it's intended. There's all kinds of things that are in the very similar envelope. The child tax benefit. And that's worked famously for families right across the country. But how do we proceed with basic income to ensure that it's meeting people's individual needs? Because we know, we know, we have an issue in the province with many types of addictions. So I'm not trying to insinuate that every dollar that goes out to help low-income peoples will be spent anywhere but at the grocery store. But it has to be followed and coupled with all the harm reduction policies, because they work. People think it's enabling folks to drink or to use drugs or what have you, but in places where they have really effective and comprehensive harm reduction policies, it does work. So you want to talk about that concept of basic income. I know many people think it's absolute nonsense, and it's about you know getting out there and putting in the effort. I've never had a check from the government, but I understand that I hear the stories, you hear the stories, you see the struggles in your community, maybe with your own neighbors or even inside your own family. So we've got to figure out a way to deal with that. Anyway, let's go. So we're going to get an update today from uh, Minister Parsons regarding the 31 wind energy proposals. 
There's only been a couple that have ever garnered any headlines, and you know the big one, of course, is World Energy GH2 and their plans for the Port of Port Peninsula. I don't know what all these projects include. It'd be interesting to know how many of them are for export, whether it be green, green hydrogen, because we're not connected to a grid where it's going to be easy to use offshore wind farms, for instance, to power anything up. I mean, who's the customer? How did they get the power to them? How many of these are for domestic use? How many of these are in the concept of net metering? Maybe to power up an industrial or a commercial site, sell back excess energy to the grid, and what that actually means for my rates regarding Muskrat Falls. So really curious to hear what Minister Parsons has to offer and to share today about these 31 proposals and where we go to next. All right, speaking of the world of power, and again, I absolutely do not have the brain power to fully understand this, but a breakthrough announced yesterday from the researchers at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California regarding net energy gain. So for the longest time, when they were talking about fusion, it took more power to create the net the energy than the energy that was eventually produced. So now, apparently for the first time ever, they have indeed achieved that goal, net energy gain. So I don't necessarily know the ins and outs of the fusion, but here's what it basically is. It's pressing hydrogen atoms into each other with such force that they combine into helium. Reduce, reduce, pardon me, releases enormous amounts of energy and heat, but unlike other nuclear reactions, it doesn't produce any radioactive waste. So this is baby steps, though, right? It's absolutely the first step in any sort of hope for clean energy, other than the alternatives that are currently widespread use in the world, but... Interesting story to say the very least. They're calling it one of the most impressive scientific feats of the 21st century. It'll go down in the history books. We'll see. Very much trying to mimic what happens in space with the generation of energy. But anyway, if you're smarter than me and you want to talk about it with any type of knowledge, please bring it to the show. Every now and then when I come in and I check my email inbox, it's always populated with a variety of opinions and capital letters and exclamation marks. But in the last couple of days, I don't know if these become concerted, concerted email efforts, but I guarantee I got 50 emails that are very similarly worded regarding Bill C-21, the gun control legislation. And at this moment in time, on, I do not really, uh, well, I don't own a firearm, so I don't know the ins and outs of every model on the list itself, but through conversations with people who do, the bill is deeply flawed. It absolutely, per, uh, absolutely is. So it's gone back for some careful quote-unquote, careful consideration to make sure they get it right. But if you're one of those folks who have sent along an email, which I appreciate, you can join us on the program to talk about it as well. All right, federal government. The liberals, the Trudeau liberals, have absolutely had a ethical problem. They have. Prime Minister himself twice found having broke the ethics rules, so says the uh, ethics commissioner, Mario Dion, Bill Morneau, Dominic LeBlanc, and now the inter International Trade Minister, Mary Ng. So these contracts are not whopping big amounts, but there have been contracts awarded from her department to one of her close personal friends, a lady named Amanda Alvaro. She appears on TV all the time as a liberal-based pundit. So she operates a PR firm. And so whether or not the minister was directly involved in letting these contracts. She should have recused herself. She admits as much at this moment in time. Now, as we know, in the world of politics, immediately opposition members will call for resignations. But enough is enough. And I think there's every right to suggest that this minister does not belong in cabinet. How can we 
forever put up with these ethical breaches. You know, some of them are severe, some of them not so much. But when we have all the examples that we have seen very clearly, and it's not because opposition members have said so or people who simply don't like the Prime Minister, the Ethics Commissioner plays a critically important role in this country. But what are the circumstances where he says that someone or another has been in a distinct conflict of interest or has broken ethical rule, what becomes the ramification? Unless the Prime Minister himself decides to do something about it, the shorter answer is not really anything. So Trudeau twice, Morneau, Leblanc, and now Mary Ng. Five cases where the Liberal ministers broke the ethics laws. So resignation, sometimes I find that to be the political theater. That's sometimes absurd. But hard to argue with that one when the opposition members are calling for it at this moment in time. There's some indication out there. Talk about national numbers again. There's some indication that we may have seen the peak of inflation rates and maybe coming back to a little bit more manageable and noticeable. The proof will be in the pudding as to what we pay specifically at the pumps and in the home, home industry and, of course, at the grocery store. So the consumer price index, it rose by 0.2% in November, which is disinflationary and a bit of a surprise. And in this month so far, 0.1% may indeed see the peak of inflation. But again, it's fine to get these big numbers from Stats Canada or other organizations. But it only really impacts me and you is when we go to pay our bill, whether it be at the gas pump and, yes, or the grocery store, or to buy a home or to buy the lumber required to build a home and all the other products required. But some good news out there to indicate we might be there. All right, a couple of good ones before we get off to the break and your call. <laughs> this is really apropos of nothing. 1977, hitting the silver screen, Saturday Night Fever. Of course, starring a young John Travolta. He was a champion dancer working in a working-class dead-end job. Much of my teen years were very much like Travolta as a champion dancer. So it made him a household name. And made disco worldwide sensation. The soundtrack featuring the Bee Gees, of course, one of the best-selling soundtracks of all time. And thank you and congratulations to the folks at Collision Clinic. Today, for their 19th annual giveaway, they have taken a car, put it back in perfect working order, going to give it to a family in need. So bravo to the folks at Collision Clinic. We're on Twitter. We're VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvosim.com. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Katrina Daly. You're on the air. Hi there, Patty. How are you? Great today. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Just calling um, because this morning the article there from Barry Petten from the School Launch Association mm-hmm. was on VOCM talking about the impact on cost of living on students. And he made a comment about more resources are needed and a greater equalizer is needed. And I'm just going to say that there's no equality in school lunch, um, regardless of an increase in the cost of living. Like, don't get me wrong, I support the School Lunch Association. It's wonderful, great. Um, but they've certainly expanded beyond their, ca- their capabilities. Like, you know, and they're talking about give, give, give if you want to give. But this charity only helps 41 schools, 41 schools, mainly in Metro. So what about the rest of the schools that have nothing? So I have an interest in this because I'm a parent volunteer who tries to provide lunch at my school once a week. A school that didn't have any lunch, doesn't have a cafeteria, doesn't have a lunch program. So I contacted school lunch association when I started off a friend of a uh, friend of mine and myself 
to provide lunch at our school once a week and ask the school lunch association, what can they do for me? And, no, you know, they explained that um, they only service 41. They went from one school to 41 schools now, like I said, mainly in Metro. And these kids eat five days a week, regardless of if their family can pay or not. Five days a week they receive hot lunch at their school. But my kids eat at their lunch bags five days a week. You know, he explained to me that the government already gives $600,000 for school lunch association to feed kids in only 41 schools. And they need, they need a million from government to help with their $3 million budget. While we're collecting, literally nickeling and diming out of a Ziploc bag, collecting money from kids so that we can feed them for hopefully $5. Well, that was just my little thing that got me this morning, talking about greater equalizer. No, there is no equalization across the island in the school launch program period, regardless of the living. So that's my thought for today. Right, okay. I mean, I understand that if you don't have a child in one of the 41 schools, unable to avail of the school lunch program, it would be frustrating, no doubt about it. I would imagine the School Lunch Association would like to mimic what Kids Eat Smart does and their penetration numbers into schools right across the province. I don't think that their purpose, now I've never done anything with the School Lunch Association necessarily, I don't think they're purposefully uh, ignoring other schools and their distinct needs. Oh, my gosh. No, indeed, indeed they're not. I mean, I spoke with the executive director, and he was, you know, very sympathetic to how I felt about my kids eating out of their lunch bags the same boring snacks five days a week. Like you said, he wished there was something that he could do, but he did explain to me that the government gives them $600,000 a year while I'm collecting nickels and dimes from my um, definitely not high-end financial people out here to eat, you know, around the bay. And I, finally, we did talk about what he could do for me was at least send me a few second-hand trays um, so that we wouldn't have to spend some of the students' money on plates and cutlery, et cetera, but I still didn't hear anything about that. But anyways, I just figure that before government gives more money to a program that only feed a certain few, that we should figure out a way uh, for all students to eat what does that look like? Because I brought that up. Yeah, I brought that up off the top. And, you know, I saw a lady propose that uh, a government-supported program for school lunches across the board for every school in the province. And, of course, the pushback is, you know, well, not every child needs that type of uh, support coming from a government fund and people should find their own way and make their own, uh, make their own lunches or whatever. But the fact that kind of ignores the fact that There are families out there that certainly in the last couple of years have simply not been able to make ends meet, period. So if we see the amount of people using a food bank of 27% in year over year just this year, then we have got to figure out and understand a way to combat that. Now, does it have to be all government support? Maybe not. But, you know, whether it be a group of community leaders like yourself, Katrina, and some uh, annual fundraising that has an appreciative impact on trying to provide lunch inside the school, whether it be three days a week or five days a week or whatever the case may be, people will scratch and claw until they get to where they want to be. I don't know how it works, but I'm concerned with food insecurity all the time. I think about it a lot because I hear so many stories where they're devastating, absolutely devastating stories. This one lady, who I have no reason to believe she's not telling me the truth, 
She has ha- hasn't had three suppers a week for a year, just so she can provide for her children. So she will prepare and put the food on the table and then maybe nibble on a, a, a slice of bread while the children eat properly and nutritiously, and she goes without. That can't stand. It's Canada in 2022. It makes no sense. Yeah, and I mean, there are kids at my small rural school of um, approximately 60 who are in the same boat. You know, like... Uh, <sighs> you don't know what kind of meals they're eating. And I know that we've had a couple little free lunches. If we've gained 40 or $50, we had a couple donations and there are definitely more, there was definitely more uptake when the meal was free than when they had to bring their $5. Yep. Yep. You know, it's just so pathetic. And I just, the, the thing that caught me in that article was that we need a greater equalizer. And like I said, regardless, I know that the impact of cost of living is affecting everybody but there is no equalization in kids eating, period. Like, I, I don't, I, I, I believe in the school lunch program. I, I truly do. But it's not, it, it, there's no equality. Like, encouraging people, people should be giving to a program where they know that they can help all students. Like, these children here in rural or wherever it be that they don't have access to a school lunch program, they're, they're just as deserving to eat five days a week as the rest. Yeah, no, of course they are. I don't imagine that anybody is making donations to school lunch who doesn't have a child in a school that actually has the school lunch program. That's why their fundraising efforts are nowhere near, for instance, what we see with Kids Eat Smart, because they have a provincial footprint. Consequently, they have provincial impact, and people in different pockets of the province are willing to donate to that uh, association because they see it. They see it in their own kid's school. So it makes it a vastly different reality for Kids Eat Smart versus school lunch. Uh, Katrina, keep up the good work in trying to help inside your own child's school. I know the scramble is real and the numbers of people going to school hungry is unbelievable in this province. So we've got to talk about it. We've got to figure out a way to make it better. We do. And we need to make, you know, food accessible for all children in all schools, not just those 41 schools eating five days a week. Yeah, apparently you know, it's four days a week. spread it out? You know, all the eggs are in one basket here. Um before I give more money to an association that can't help every child, I'd definitely want to figure out a way how all children can eat. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you very much, Katrina. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, and how that works, whether it requires community leadership or municipal governments or the province or just individual families who have the capacity and the time and the money and the contacts to make it happen. But I am suppose I'm like you. Hearing stories of kids starving is just not sitting with me. I mean, Canada, first world country, 2022, and we have millions of Canadians that have to go to the food bank. And if it wasn't for the food bank, they'd be starving. I don't know, man. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break on time here this morning. Hubert Dawes is there in the queue. He's the business manager with Teamsters Local 855. He's up, and then we're talking workplace and L, flu shots, and whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the business manager with Teamsters Local 855. That's Hubert Dog. Morning, Hubert. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Uh, very all morning here this morning for sure. Tis that. Um, very disheartened to have to call in this morning, Patty, and just let you and your viewers know that as of uh, November 18th of this year, paramedics, EMRs, and dispatchers with 13910 Newfoundland Labrador, CBS, and Holyrood, 72351 in Stephenville, Burial and Emergency Services in Cape Royal, 
yours and ours called Bonavista, Catalina, Tyronville, Lethbridge, Port Rex, and Terrenceville. Gamble Ambulance, Mercer's Ambulance, Bow Carmelville, and Bow and Lions Ambulance. I mean, we walk. Hubert, we have a terrible connection. It's kind of fading in and out. Maybe give us a shuffle left or right, see if we can clear it up a bit. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, that sounds a bit better. Go ahead. Okay, so okay. all these communities, the bad news is what, sir? The the paramedics uh, have been in a strike position since November 18th, and we've completed our strike vote with a mandate to proceed with strike action. Uh, we, uh, we've, reached, we've reached out to the employer. We had an agreement in place to have a last-chance meeting to try to resolve the issues that we have outstanding, which happened uh, yesterday and the day before in Clarenville. Um, the employer has no interest in addressing any of the issues. He didn't even bother to show up to the meetings. He did send representatives on his behalf who had no authority or ability to negotiate on behalf of the employer. And we've, we've, we now find ourselves in a position where we, uh, where we at any time now have the legal ability to walk off the job. The employer has also disassociated himself from the whole process because my biggest fear here now is we do not have an agreement in place to provide emergency services should we decide to walk off the job. Before we get to what that actually means, I'm pretty sure I know what's on the list of re- requests or demands from uh, the Teamsters Local 855, but what are they? So, uh, walk us through some of them. The, the main, well, our, our, uh, our group in Stephenville, they're in a full contract renegotiation at this time. Uh, the rest of the services that I listed are in what we call a monetary reopener phase. We took concessions last time around based on we were at, uh, looking for a hope that there would be an increase in the ASA back in April of this year. There wasn't, which you know caused the employer just to blatantly refuse any and all uh, offers that we were trying to make there. And we've gone through the entire process right up to you know having the minister sign off and, and allowing us to take our strike vote. And now we have a strike mandate from our members. Uh, wages, of course, were you know number one priority for here. You know, you guys, I, I, even in your preamble, you're talking about how inflation is affecting this problems, you know, food, fuel, and whatever else. You know. The annual service itself is not, it not it is recession proof. Unfortunately, the people who work for it are not, and you know we uh, our our numbers are dwindling. We're you know very very low paid, very high demand put on on the members that we have, and we're just looking for some more compensation for it. I will uh, throw kudos to the government in response to our pending strike. They did on Friday release a incentive package that's very similar to the one that we see in the public service. And that was made available to all private and uh, community-based ambulance services in the province. And that the monies for that should start flowing early in the new year. So we were very, very pleased to see that. Unfortunately, for the other issues that we had outstanding, such as pensions and, and uh, overtime and stuff like that, the employer has no interest in, uh, in talking about it. And if I may quote him directly, we're not getting any of his pension. So the 70 ambulances that are running for the services that we represent every day, he's out operating every one of those while we're at home looking at our cows. Man, oh man. So what does walk off the job look like? Does that mean that the EMRs, paramedics on all of those ambulances and all of those communities will be staying home? There will be no ambulance service available? That's that's the situation that we find ourselves in now. There's no there's no agreement in place to provide, to provide emergency services. Um, you know, and... Uh, so, uh, you know, as we, we go on strike, we'll be no different than any other industry goes on strike right now. We find ourselves out on the picket line and, 
you know, trying to draw attention to our cause, and hopefully somebody will put enough pressure on, on the employer that he'll see the sense to bring something back to the table. What kind of percentage are we talking about an increase in pay? Because we you know we've seen a bunch of contracts in the recent past at four years, two, 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 those types of things. Yep. What sort of compensation package are you looking at or demanding from the employer? Um, we it, it varies by the service, but I mean we we, we we're, we're we're still trying to figure out the details on on the government incentive package there. But it looks like it's going to be four percent over the next two years, which of course is problematic for us because that indicates to us now the government has made the determination. We're not going to see the changes to the ambulance services in the, on April 1st, 2023 that we've been promised. So that's that's moved on further on down the road, right? We just we, we, we just want to see a wage package. You know, if, if, if we come back with something similar to that, I mean, like, you know, this is great. The government's put this incentive package on the table here now. But, you know, it's up until, you know, starts the, the second year of this program is designed to start on April 1st in 2023. What happens in 2024? What happens in 2025? Like the, the the employer is looking for a five-year contract, but no 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 wage increases. I mean, the paramedics. I tried to keep paramedics in the conversation with the shortage and the issues or the burdens facing healthcare workers in the province. Mm-hmm. And we know whether it be all the way to red alerts or communities losing their ambulance, and yes, the province losing paramedics. With the groups that you just mentioned and the communities that will possibly be affected, how many ambulances are we talking about? How many professionals? That would be. Uh, I, I just did up the numbers here. Sorry, I find my paper. So it's uh, for the ones that that are in strike position now. It will be thirty-four ambulances, and you can. So you're, we're talking about a, about one hundred and sixteen paramedics, EMRs, and dispatchers that could come off the road. And they got into that profession because they wanted to be a healthcare worker, a first responder, to help, to be part of the system. So obviously we don't have all of these people who don't care and don't want to go to work and are willing to leave people without ambulatory services. just speaks to just the level of angst and the amount of time it's taken for the, all the great unknowns to be answered, whether it be by the province or private contractors. This has been bubbling for a long time, so no surprise that you've got rank and file who are at that that mental state now where they're willing to withdraw their service. Yeah, and it, it, it is very, very unfortunate. And we keep reaching out to government, and government doesn't want to engage with us. Like We, we thought it was such a positive thing that we, we, you know, we, made, we were made aware that this incentive package came out on Friday. But um, and, and I want to I want to say a big thank you to Paul Din, the health critic, and uh, excuse me, Helen Conway Ottenheimer, because they they've really have taken the time to to meet with us, discuss with us, find out what what the situation is for our private ambulance services. And all I can do to is, is request that the people that are in these communities that are going to be affected, particularly if your member is on the house side, please reach out to them and ask them to get involved in this process. We have not heard nothing clear of this incentive program from the government side of things, despite our pleas to, to want to be involved in this process and try to prevent this situation from happening. Keep us in the loop, uh, Hubert, but I appreciate your time this morning, and this is obviously going to be a major concern for folks living in those communities. We've already got a problem with the numbers of paramedics and the time it takes to get an ambulance and round trips from some communities that are underserviced in the ambulance world. You know, it's one thing to see a consolidation of air and ground ambulance into the one one envelope, but that does nothing to improve the service necessarily. I appreciate this. Keep us uh, keep us informed with what's happening. Very good. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. You too, Hubert. Bye bye. Right. Holy smokes, Hubert Dahl, business manager, Teamsters Local eight fifty five. Withdrawal of ambulatory services. 
Someone better get to that table. Let's go to line number three. Charlene, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm, no, I'm okay. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I called in this morning because I want to talk about policy versus the regulation and the legislation. So uh, with regards to workplace NL, we've got a policy of a Form 6 that needs to be signed underneath their policies interdepartmental issues, okay, and policies or whatever you want to call them. So the thing is, Form 6 is called a report of injury, or as they have told us, that it there used to be a separate form for a report of recurrence as well. So the current issue is that... An injured worker under Section 55 needs to apply for compensation only, and they need to provide proof via medical professional documentation for the injury. They are not asked to report the injury themselves. They are asked to apply for compensation, and compensation is earnings. It's what they are losing in earnings. And they just need to provide the, the medical proof from their medical doctors. So the other part of Form 6 is it states that they need this signed to process the claim. Now, however, underneath Section 64 of the legislation, it states that the commission itself has the power to reopen, assess, make changes to the claim, as long as they receive new medical documentation or new information regarding that claim. So there's no legal precedent for Form 6 to be signed by any injured worker. Okay, this all... We really need to start addressing the fact that who is making this form a policy... And why is the policy not in alignment with Section 55 and Section 64 of the legislation itself? Okay, I I haven't dealt with uh, Workplace NL. So what you describe sounds fairly straightforward to me. So what's the actual problem with what you're describing? They will. They are refusing compensation to an injured worker because they refuse to sign this form when the legislation does not back up the use of the form, and no matter how many times that they've been told in the last 11 weeks, they have yet to address the fact that it's not in alignment with the legislation itself. So where do you turn for that to be rectified? Because if the legislation isn't carrying the day, and Workplace NL is basically a piece of legislation, uh, so where do you turn? I have no idea. We've reached out to... The minister's office, we've reached out to the review division, we've reached out to um, basically the PCs, like everywhere, everywhere. And it's just pure crickets or absolute silence. It's unreal that no one is willing to call them out on the fact that this is a policy and policy is not law. 
And I mean, we have the five-year reviews of Workplace NL. I don't know if anything ever changes. I know there's been some compensation adjustment in the past five years. But if we're not abiding by the legislation that has actually created Workplace NL and should be the guiding principle and nothing else for Workplace NL, it seems quite bizarre to me. Uh, just so I'm 100% sure I know what we're talking about. So what's the possible or the outcomes you're experiencing because of this? So just, you know, the basics. People are being denied compensation, period? Exactly. My, um, in our situation in particular, there is a permanent reduction in working hours. And they received that information in late September. And there's been nothing no action at all on paying the the loss of earnings from those reduction in hours since that time. There's also some sort of appeal process. If I remember correctly, there was big issues with the wait times. It was supposed to be evaluated, I think it was 10 or 11 weeks or something. We were never hitting the targets on that front. Is there a formal appeal process for your circumstance? Well... Patty, here's my issue. Why should I have to appeal something that is not law? Why should anyone have to go through an appeal process when it's not law? It's poor policy. Because the form that should be recommended should have been just strictly an application for compensation for the loss of earnings which is money. It's not even hours, it's earnings. It's dollar for dollar. I mean, I'm not suggesting that you should have to do it, but no, sometimes no, when you do it, you might get the outcome required, and that's actually demanded by the law, and then consequently there might be a shakeup inside the administration of workplace NL compensation packages that reflect what is actually enshrined in legislation, as opposed to what seems to be an ad hoc approach to who gets the compensation, whether it be hours or dollars, regardless. So that's the only reason I would suggest that, you know, appeal, albeit an unfortunate avenue to have to take, it's one that if you did take, maybe you could rectify your situation and help people, uh, others like you, avoid the same circumstance. That's the only rationale I was offering. Well, I don't feel that an appeal process is going to help anyone else. Okay. And that's why I'm reaching out to you this morning, because... There's other, I could go on for probably hours as to other issues that I found with regards to workplace and not following the legislation. For instance, um, underneath section 19.1G, it talks about a dependency on the existence of dependency on the, uh, on the earnings for the injured worker at the time. That never, ever, ever was a discussion taken in our case. There was never, ever talks of what depended on the income, and our rent depended on the income. And because the workplace in L put um, that on the back burner and didn't gather that information, we were kicked out on the streets. We can no longer afford to pay our rent because the dependency of the income was our rent money. And then to further get into this, Section 80-2 says, 
shall be considered not to exceed the maximum um, prescribed amount, or I'm not sure of the exact words. Okay. Charlene, I'm going to ask you to do something for me before I have to uh, go off to the break, which I'm late for. If you have it all compiled uh, on a piece of a... uh, a word document or something if you send me what you're relaying to me here so that i can read it in full and consider exactly what's going on i will ask someone representing workplace and to come on the show and answer these questions for you and everyone else out there dennis hogan is the current ceo but i think the same dennis hogan has just been appointed the new ceo of the st john's international airport authority so i'll get someone at the executive level from workplace nl but you'd be doing me a great favor by sending me some of this information to my email so that i can have it in front of me so i can better understand it so I can ask the proper questions. How's that work? That's great. Can I just finish my thought quickly, though? Very quickly. Okay, so Section 80-2, like I was talking about, it says shall be considered. So that means before you set the regulation of the prescribed maximum in Section 80-8, they have to put a lot of thought into consideration. They're mandated to put a lot of thought into consideration. And even in their policy, it says exceptional circumstances. And in our case, they didn't ask the exceptional circumstances. They put us at the maximum capacity immediately, which put my family of five out on the streets. Out on the streets. Which is... We did not and could not afford to pay rent. Which is awful. Obviously, but it Charlene, if you can it send me that, awful. if you can send me that email, I'll chase it for you. I absolutely will put that in the email format. Okay. Uh, and thank you very much for listening. I hope other people are listening, and I really, really think that people need to start educating themselves on the fact that workplace NL is actually not following the legislation itself. They are not doing their due diligence. I appreciate the time, and I look forward to the email, and I will get someone from Workplace and I'll come on. All right. Thank you very much, Patty. You have a great day. You too, Charlene. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. I'll get that email, and I will chase that one. Uh, Break time. When we come back, it's flu shots. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Heather. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing fine, thanks. How about you? Good, good. 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 Um, I just wanted to talk about the flu shot, I'm going to say for seniors, because that's where I I have the interest right now. Anyway, I attended a webinar or Zoom meeting or something the other night uh, with, um, it was hosted by a Dr. Shelley McNeil of Nova Scotia. She's an immunologist there, and uh, she was talking about various um, uh, various um, vaccines we could get as seniors, so it was sponsored by CARP, C-A-R-P. Anyway, so it was interesting. I had heard about this boosted flu shot for seniors, and so I investigated it. And I found out um, from um, a national organization, what was that called? The uh, National Advisory Committee on immunization. They are recommending this boosted shot for seniors in Canada. Mm -hmm. Anyway, on our websites, our government, Department of Health, our Eastern Health, nowhere is there a mention of this. 
So what I what I come to understand from the meeting the other night was that one of the reasons that governments don't do that, they don't let you know, is because they aren't sponsoring it. So then... What, what, is that, what does that mean, not sponsoring it? They're not providing it free, like regular flu shots. Well, that's right. It comes with a price tag. It does, yeah. It comes with a price tag, yeah. It's about $82. So, like, I don't mind too much that they're not doing it. The problem I have is that they're not letting us know. They're not informing us so that we can make our own decision. It, um, and that's, that's terrible. This boosted flu shot, I think the name is Fluzone HD, um, is 25% more effective in seniors than the regular flu shot. And I went down to, um, I went to a pharmacy to get this. I called ahead. They did have it, made an appointment. They were going to charge me the, uh, an injection fee on top of the cost. So I discussed that with them, and uh, so that was waived because nobody else had to pay an injection fee, and they were getting the free flu shot. So I got that waived, but that's another $20 and $82. So we can't, um, I just would like seniors to know about this option if you haven't had your flu shot. And for me, at 68, this was my very first one. And I thought long and hard about getting it at all, I can tell you. But I wasn't going to get a uh, a flu shot that wasn't going to be effective for me. It was like a recipe calling for four eggs for a cake, and you put in one and expect it to, to work right. It doesn't. So um, this lady, Dr. McNeil, talked about also the effects of of flu, the cost to the system, for people and people that get the flu so badly that they are hospitalized. And I don't know, but I would suspect that the cost of providing the flu shot free to people that can't afford it or don't have a a drug plan that would provide it, um, that they would, you know, support it. They could even, even, like... um, offer to pay the difference between, let's say, a regular flu shot is $30. I don't know. Um, They could put that towards the cost of the $83 shot so that we're only paying $50, for example, and offer to pay the injection fee, which is $20. Like it, It all really helps, but we're not given any information by our government, and that's the thing that I kind of resent. Let us know and let us make up our own mind. I think the Seniors Advocate Office is uh, working on this for next year. Uh, And again, it is the recommendation by the National Advisory Committee on Immunology or on Vaccines. So that was it for me. It was all I had to say this morning. 
Oh, I appreciate you making time. Now, Heather, I did not know that the government did not put that information on their website, but last week on this program, Dr. Janice Fitzgerald was on, and I asked her specifically about different dosages for children, adults my age, and seniors, and she spoke to it, and I have mentioned many times on the program that that senior's dose is available, albeit with a price tag, versus going in at my age and just getting the regular, I'll call it, regular dosage of the seasonal influenza vaccine. So I'm glad you brought it up again this morning, and we'll make that mention uh, repeatedly on the program. If people are interested in getting the flu shot this year, they need to be armed with the information to make the best decision for them. And you're right. The increased dosage for a senior does up the efficacy as uh, I think you use 28%, certainly by at least 25% in everything I've ever read about it. So I'm glad you brought it up so people now, when they're considering or they got an appointment scheduled for this week, they'll know what they're getting themselves into. Okay. Thanks a million. Thanks, Heather. Okay. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, I mean, we did ask about different dosages because that is a question that people repeatedly ask. Anyway, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Michael wants to talk about immigration, and then we're talking about kids going to school hungry. Roger Dyke is up in Lab West talking search and rescue, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Yes, good morning. Good morning to you. Um, what I, I don't know what Jerry Burns and, and, and the premier, premier, premier or Andrew and I'm trying to think about. You know, i got many immigrants coming in here. But they're to turn around and to bring all the immigrants and feed them and clothe them. And then to turn around, to, you know, the people here are starving. Can't afford put food on the table. Can't afford to pay rent. Can't afford to see a doctor. We get to bring them in all here and put them in hotels. Everything get. I mean, I, I I don't agree with that. You don't agree with the immigration period or the issue with hotel rooms or what have you? No, I don't bring bring all the immigrants in. No, because some reason like half some people is not going to go to work. I mean, like I said, I got many against them, but look after your own people first before you does all this. I mean, the people know doctors and like that. I mean, they should look. Everybody should look after first. There are different uh, pathways to being an immigrant to this country. There's four different silos. The Ukrainian refugees, as a matter of fact, don't qualify for any of the federal benefits because they had a fast-tracked process to get here. There's no problem with questioning how they're being housed and access to health care and what have you. But the government tells us, and I don't know how accurate any of these numbers are necessarily, but they say already two-thirds of the immigrants that have come from Ukraine in particular already have a job. So the issue with immigration in this province is always going to be contentious, and it is on the national level as well. But the the death rate is double the birth rate in this province. If we don't add to the population, fewer of us paying the bills through taxes or fees or what have you becomes a real death spiral. We'll end up in a place where we won't be able to afford anything to provide to people who are born and raised here, for instance. So at some point, adding to the population has got to be part of the equation. I know people have problems with certain facets of immigration, and yes, it's a fair question about how they're being housed and how many of them will go to work and what have you. But, you know, just think of the fact that the aging population of the province, and at some point, there becomes fewer of us working, paying taxes, and the death rate double the birth rate, that's a real terrible recipe. Isn't it? Yeah, but how do you how can you afford to put the, how do you afford to raise kids in a family in this problem when everything's so high? I mean, rent is high, groceries high, everything's so high. I, I mean, I'm in ways you can't do it. I understand the cost of living concerns. I hear it every single day, every day. 
Yeah, but I mean, every, every you know, you turn on have uh, full banks, people get more and more full banks every all day, and I don't know, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then they're, I mean, it's cost money. I think that's why everything's so high, because we're bringing immigration on. And, I mean, one guy comes down somewhere. That's why everything's so expensive? Yeah, I think so. Well, how would that factor into the price of uh, anything at the grocery store? Well, well, the money got, I mean, I guess they're putting everything up, because maybe the government wants more taxes, I don't know. Well, a lot of stuff in the grocery store doesn't have a tax applied to it, but um, fair enough. What part of the province uh, are you living in, Michael? Uh, Steamo. Do you see many immigrants in your neck of the woods? See you there, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, what nerding is, why would kids say four or five, five, six years old, want to stay here, no plan years down the road? And people just come and come and come. You think you're going to be able to find a job here? I don't think so. Why not? Well, I figured I'm going to take it over. I did on Fort Murray places. I'm not sure what that means, but, I mean, more people, generally speaking, in economic terms, more people, more demand on services, more demand on services, more jobs. Yeah, but I don't think they're paying. You, you think they're paying eight hundred dollars a month rent? Well, when they move into whatever property that they're going to live in, buy a home or pay rent, they're going to have to pay the rent. I'm not sure what that means. You know, the people paying eight hundred dollars rent and they're trying to work. I mean, that's pretty hard to do, right? I'm in mean, wage. You can't do it. I think government should be more. You know, help more people than what they're doing. I don't think there's much of an argument against government needs to do to needs to do whatever they need to do to help people who are struggling, and that number is huge, and it's not going to be solved with a five hundred dollar check either. No, that that was a waste of money, as far as I'm concerned. But bring people that out, yeah, help people much. Yeah, a lot of people are going to get that check. I'll say that they don't really need it. Now, some of the folks who earn that amount of money maybe have got themselves stretched thin, but they certainly have the capacity to deal with it much differently than folks who are, you know, making $35,000 or less per year, which I really don't understand how people make ends meet, to be honest with you. And I guess the fact is many people aren't making ends meet. They're falling behind in their bills. They're unable to buy the proper load of groceries that they would have been able to afford, say, five years ago just for a round number. Uh, Michael, anything else you want to say this morning while we have you? No, uh, yeah, one more thing. Uh, okay. uh, true or not, I don't think he should be changing the gun laws. Uh, I don't believe what he's doing there, so I yeah. don't know. He, he, he's, I don't know. The the legislation as it stands really doesn't make much sense. Uh, If we're going to have gun control, it's got to actually make sense, be backed up with evidence versus just picking things that look dangerous because if one weapon or firearm that does X is banned and another one that does the exact same thing is not banned, then obviously it doesn't make any sense. And apparently there's endless examples of that in this legislation. Gun control, Canadians are in favor. But even Canadians who are in favor of gun control should want it to be legitimate backed by evidence, and actually just makes sense. And, you know, starting right. with, you know, handguns, i got no problem personally with a handgun ban, and I know people use it for sports shooting or what have you. There's ways to deal with that. But we got to protect the border from the importation of illegal handguns coming from the states, presenting us up in the hands of criminals, and they, the gangs and the, the criminal element in the country, they make up about 25% of homicides per year. Let's make sure we do as, what we can with that versus anything else. Uh, Michael... Go ahead. I think it's going to be hard to, to stop them from bringing that in. 
Well, I mean, certainly we can do more at the border. I mean, the, the National Police Chiefs Association, they think this legislation doesn't do what it's intended to do, and they'd know better than me exactly what the legislation looks like, what the outcomes will be. So if we don't focus in on gang crime and gang violence and gangs and guns, then we're kind of missing the point, I, I would think, anyway. Uh, Michael, appreciate yeah, the time. You take good care of yourself. Okay. All right, man. Okay, you what? Okay, bye-bye. Another one for the break. Let's go to line six. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. Yes, it's me, is it? That's you. Okay, no, I just wanted to talk about, uh, I heard you talking earlier about kids going to school hungry. Uh, I hear, I see the Prime Minister standing uh, in the House every second day and talking about he lifted so many people out of poverty by increasing the the baby bonus, I guess, or whatever you mind to call it. No, it's the child uh, tax benefit, yeah. Yeah, the child tax benefit three times since he got in uh, elected. So if he done that, uh, like three children now are probably getting sixteen or $1,700 a month, okay? Okay. Your parents, not the children, because the children don't get the checks. The parents get the checks, right? Yep. So who's being irresponsible? The kids are, certainly aren't being irresponsible because they can't go on and spend this money. It's up to the, to the parents to make good decisions. And the first decision you make is feed your children, right? Right. Right. So sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars for three kids. That's just an example. Now, you should be able to put eight hundred dollars on the table in groceries before you buy your little uh, your little wants and needs. I'm talking about other things now, which I'm not going to get into. But there's money there. The no kid should be going to school hungry. We had nothing when we were small, but we never went to school without a meal, and we never went to school hungry. And we never had no breakfast programs, no nothing to depend on. It was just our parents. The parents, the government has made the parents irresponsible. A pack of cigarettes, you can buy four liters of milk, okay? Now, if you're buying two packs a day, that's eight liters. That's just one. So they should be spending their money responsible. Don't you agree? Sure, but it's a pretty uh, wide, sweeping statement. I mean, the ins- the, ins- the insinuation is that parents who are getting this money are not taking care of their children, when, of course, that's probably not true for the vast majority of parents who want to take care and who love their kids. The fact of the matter is is that that $800 does not go as far as it did a couple of years ago. Nowhere near Patty, it. What? Patty, what, what? Is the, what is the Prime Minister saying he lifted people out of poverty for if he didn't? There's no good to be rich on paper if you, if you can't feed your kids. Being rich is a, a long way from being poor. And well, the poverty the that- and the poverty level, I mean, I do think the child tax benefit has been very helpful. I think if you ask families who receive it, they think it's been very helpful. Is every parent who's getting that check doing what they should be doing with that check? I mean, it's not for me to say, and I don't think anybody really firmly knows. Are some parents spending it irresponsibly, whether it be on drugs or booze or smokes or the BLTs or something? Probably. But I would think that most parents, their number one goal in this world is to take care of their children. I know it was it's certainly mine, so I think that most are going in the right direction, but that's not to say that people aren't taking those checks and doing something that is not benefiting the kid. Fair enough. But how has the government made pe- parents uh, irresponsible? I'm not sure what that means. Because they keep increasing it, thinking that the, that the right thing is being done with this money, but it's not. Right? Because I know. I see it every day. I see it every day, every minute, every day I see it. And I'm not the only one. People here or anywhere are not going to get on and say it, but I don't care. I can tell anybody what I'm getting a year to live on, and I don't be hungry. 
I never got a social service check in my life. It all depends on how you spend your money. Right. So to take that a step further, you're saying that the government should not have any of these supports in place? Because if it's a bad situation now, it's a much worse situation if they don't have money to try to take care of their kids, isn't it? Try? What, what do you mean by try, Patty? There's no trying to it. If you've got a small child, two, three, four-year-old, that's your responsibility. Yeah. Any boy can make a child, but it takes a man to feed it. All right. Okay? Yep. That's my belief. As far as Jerry Burns concerned, he's on blowing his horn every day, okay? Oh, we're getting, we got those many people in. We're getting more people in. What about the 2,000 people that are living on the streets in St. John's? Who's helping them? Are they lazy? Or have you forgot? Or who cares about them? Well, I think Jerry Burns' mandate is quite clear inside his role as the minister responsible for immigration. Uh, answer to your question as to who cares about people on the street, I would suggest most of us do. Well, he should be talking more about it. And, and say, cause you know something? There's foreigners here, okay? And God love them. I, I think they're great people. But you know something? They're all working. 90, uh, I won't say 90. I say 50% of them are using food banks, okay? Because they can't make a go of it at, at their jobs they're doing, minimum wage, right? Because they're paying rent, and, they're, and they cost them a lot of money to get here. Money free, right? They cost them a lot of money. They're paying all this back. Plus, they got to live. They got they got kids. They got to buy it, but they're not irresponsible people. They're a lot smarter than Canadians. They know what to do with their money, okay? Canadians have forgotten what to do with their money. Simple as that. Some have. That's right. A lot. An awful lot. Well, I don't know where you're getting your numbers, David, but some have. Uh, that's what I'll go with. Yeah, well, I know I know the facts, but you're, you're, you're not a, perhaps you're not out in the real world like me, okay? How could that possibly be? Well, because, I mean, uh, you're, you're, well, <laughs> I'm in a different world. I'll put it that way. But what does that mean? I mean, you don't think that I hear these stories as much as sure anyone hear, in the entire province? That's not what I'm saying. You hear it, but I see it. Well, so do I. I mean, I I live in the city which has probably the worst homelessness problem. Yeah, but when you're passing down the street and you see someone with a bag on their back, do you know if they're home, homeless or if they're just going home with a load of groceries in their bag? I mean, but here, everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows what everybody's doing. And it's a small town. And this is not the only small town. Trudeau has given lots of money to live on. I got to, I got to hand them that. Lots of money, but it's not, going, it's not being spent in the right way. Well, I mean, I don't know what real world I should be living in, but I mean, I deal directly with the groups that deal with these issues as their job, whether it be in Homelessness St. John's or The Gathering Place or Food First NL. I mean, I'm in constant communication with these people. I hear the stories. I see the numbers. We do what we can for them. That's as real as it gets. Oh, no, I'm not saying that, you, that. That's not going on. I'm not saying you don't do. People are really kind, really generous, but it seems like the more you help people, the more irresponsible they get. As far as Jerry Burns concerned, all these people that they're bringing in, the gentleman before was right. They get sick. They need health care. They need help. They need a place to rent. They need, they're just probably adding to a already out-of-control health care system that we can't handle, and we don't know where it's going. I appreciate the call, David. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.
All right, uh, break time. We've got Roger Dyke, you're next, sir. Search and Rescue Lab West. And welcome back. Let's go line number one. Roger Dyke, you're on the air. Good morning, sir. Morning to you. I heard the other day you were on the radio there. You were talking about Search and Rescue. They've got a basket or something out for a helicopter. Yeah. Yeah. What's the good of that when you can't get hold of them? When you can't get a hold of who? Search and Rescue. You've got a, a so hard to get hold of them. It's unreal. Well, this was the Newfoundland Labrador Search and Rescue Association, not the Coast Guard or not the government. This is that group of volunteers, and they were setting up three new search and rescue groups in Labrador for ground search and rescue. That's the reference to that particular new piece of equipment they have. Well, I'm glad they got it, but meanwhile now, I'm talking about on Newfoundland around Stephenville area. Let's go there, okay? Four calls to try to get somebody to come in and get somebody that's been hurt. Right? They called uh, twice or three times to Cornerbrook. Finally, finally, you had to call Nova Scotia to get somebody to come in. And before uh, this person is in the woods with his foot chopped off. That's my son I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, first off, how's he, how is he? He's doing pretty good, thank you. Okay. He's doing good, doing good. Right? Thank God he's alive. And so who eventually did rescue him? Well, finally, uh, they did get search and risk rescue, but he had to go on a mountain call him. But meanwhile, before search and rescue come, Jeff called and ordered a helicopter come in and get him. But by the time the helicopter left, search and rescue called and countered a call. But the same helicopter Jeff was getting come in for him, just a guy was moving something with him. And uh, they sent one in after he had to make a call to get up to the chopper, four calls, had to go to Nova Scotia. There he is in the woods with his foot chopped up, and the guy is up in a tree trying to make calls and get up to somebody to come and get him. And meanwhile, first, when you call search and rescue, as far as I'm concerned, to make life a little bit better, it should go to a local call and send them in, not wait and make three or four calls to try to get somebody in there. You see, that's where the differences are, is if you need, for instance, a helicopter service, you might be waiting for a cormorant and the uh, actual Coast Guard search and rescue versus, the, say, for instance, the rovers and their ground search and rescue and the volunteers that they are versus the professionals that are paid by the federal government. So who did you call first? Did you call the Coast Guard? Did you call 911 or did you call the... I didn't. Sir, I didn't uh, d- now, from what I know, they called 911 in Cornerville. Okay. Right? And they done that... Uh, that two, three times, something like that. Then they had to get up to Nova Scotia. And meanwhile, now, after that, the wooden store was gone, they called out to Cornerbrook and ordered a chopper to come in. And by the time they got up, the chopper got ready to go. Search and Rescue called the same company and told them to go get him. But the chopper was on his way anyway. He was going on his way. They flew to Cornerbrook, picked up a metal back, and went on to, to pick him up. That's from what I could understand what went on there. Well, ultimately, I'm glad he's okay. I don't think I've heard much in the way of, especially when you're trying to deal with Mr. Blackwell and his ground search and rescue teams, the rovers and others, they're pretty responsive, and they're out the door toot sweet when they're called upon. I know there's been all sorts of issues and confusion and lack of uh, support, for instance, with the Coast Guard and search and rescue capacity in Labrador, especially when we're talking about fast rescue craft and fixed-wing aircraft and those types of things. But I don't think I've heard much in the way of a lag when you call for the volunteer groups to get out there and to do their searches. But anyway. i got to give the volunteer groups uh, credit because my son been search and rescue down here for a nice ball. 
and as soon as he gets called, he drops everything and gone. Right? But, I mean, for somebody to be in the woods and you got to make four calls to get somebody coming and get you, and here you are with your leg chopped up or your foot chopped up, that uh, don't make sense. Like, uh, no matter what, when you call, you should go right away. Not make five or six calls and get to Nova Scotia. They should have a place set up here in Newfoundland. They can make a phone call, just send somebody right away. That's what I believe in. Save somebody's life. Fair enough. Yeah. Appreciate the call. Anything else you want to add this morning? Uh, I'd like to talk about the Liberal government. And uh, here we are. We put a doctor in here. You think he'd be doing more for us? And that's why we got him in there. Now they're going to try to buy our votes for 500 bucks. You know, that's my opinion about that 500 bucks. Hey, man, now I got 500 bucks from the Liberal government. I'm going to make sure I vote for them. Uh, no one's going to do that. Oh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I mean, I hear that I all the don't. time. If someone wasn't willing to vote Liberal before they got the $500 checks, there's no way they're all of a sudden willing to vote Liberal for 500 bucks. Well, there's a lot of strange people. <laughs> well, meanwhile now, if somebody puts Liberal government back in after what they've been doing to us, they're pretty stupid. But I was just born a Liberal, preached to as a Liberal. I always try to be, but I'll never. If my father was running, I wouldn't vote for my father if he was in Liberal politics. That's how much I, I think that they're doing us wrong. Right? So let's hope next election everybody wake up and see what's right or wrong and do the right thing. And who would that be to vote for, sir? I wouldn't be at the hand you right now, but I would not vote for Liberal. And I, I would say PC, I would vote for him. Uh, I don't think I'll vote for NDP either because what went on uh, through the system in uh in, in Ottawa, and the PC uh, leader was going to go along with Trudeau and all this stuff, but uh, he didn't stick up for the people. He just tried to do it. Now, that's another thing. I don't believe in everything that went on there should happen. But Are you talking about the supply arrangement that the NDP have with the federal liberals? Is that what we're talking about now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, meanwhile, it's... Uh, it's a rough world to try to find a honest politician because I don't. It's not too many of them around here, right? But uh, no, I don't. Uh, I know one thing. I I don't know. That's a lie. But I believe that uh, uh, Mr. Parrott is going to run for a PC government. I think he's a good young man. Matter of fact, he used to be my paper boy years ago, and he was always a nice young man, uh, respectful, and right. And who's that? Who? What's the name again? Mr. Parrott, Lloyd Parrott, Parrott. Oh, Lloyd Parrott. I didn't. Uh, I thought you said someone Power, and I wasn't familiar no, with that Parrott. name. Right. I'm yeah. a Newfoundlander. I don't speak really well from the old country, I guess, or the old way. No, no, no. That's fine. I just didn't hear you properly, so that's why I asked. So, yeah, Mr. Parrott has expressed his interest to be the leader of the PCs. I thought they were actually going to come out of their most recent convention with a new leader. That didn't happen. Mr. Brazel still has the interim leader tag, so I don't know what the future holds for them. But sooner than later, they're going to have to have a full-time leader in place to prepare for the next election, which I suppose is going to be in a couple of years. But, uh, yeah, it's curious that they haven't made that move as of yet. I uh, appreciate the time this morning, Roger. I'm glad the young fellow's doing okay. Uh, he is, sir. He's doing good. He's doing good. Thank God for that much, and thank God he's alive. And uh, Mr. Pert will be a good man if you put him in there. Uh, I'm sure of that because I knew the guy since he was a little boy. Yeah, he's currently the member for Terranova. That's right. Great answer. Thanks, Roger. You're welcome, sir. Thank you, and Merry Christmas to you and all your uh, people out around us listening to you and your family, and God bless. The same to your family, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's get to the break. Uh, When we come back, I certainly appreciate people sitting in the queue waiting to come on the show. Everyone's looking for a deal. 
you know, especially at the grocery store. Many people who just took the flyers from the mailbox and put them in the trash are now perusing them with intensity and focus. Chris Donovan is doing that work so you don't have to. He's up right after this. Don't go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number six. Good morning, Chris Donovan. You're on the air. How you doing, man? Doing okay. How you doing? Goodbye. Good. I tell you what. Uh, I know I've mentioned you a couple of times here on the program in your Twitter account, WalkingManNL. The work you're doing to try to give people uh, some idea where the deals are, whether it be the grocery stores, the box stores, is really helping a lot of folks. I've heard several times, someone has sent me an email saying, who's that guy, where do I find him, what's he doing? Why do you do it right off the bat, Chris? Yeah, I just do it because, you know, it's very noticeable. The prices now, whenever you go in a supermarket, it's pretty crazy, a lot of stores. So, like I told a few other people, I only started it a year ago when I would just do up a list for myself and... I just tweeted out one day, and people start really liking it, and it's really after taking off since a bit of the media attention, right? Well, and so it should. I know when I gave you a yeah. couple of mentions, you wrote me, said that your following went up pretty cl- uh, pretty quickly, which is a good thing. So I know that I never used to look at the flyers. Not that I got any money, but I just didn't. You know, I'd go to the grocery store, do a bit of price comparisons in there, but now people are looking at those flyers nonstop. And when you do it, you're not just looking at the big items, the butterball turkey that you can get at Coleman's or Bidgood's today for two forty nine a pound, which I read on your most recent <laughs> report. You're going all the way down the line. Clementines and different types of sauces and stovetop stuffing and all the way through. Where do you put your focus? Is it on the big ticket items or the most uh, the staples, or are you looking throughout the entire gamut? What you think is a good deal goes in your most recent promo. Yeah, like I look what I think is a good deal, and you know compare the prices. And like this week, I've pretty much focused on you know your I guess your jigs dinner type things with Christmas coming up, like turkeys and vegetables and stuff like that. But like, and the other thing too, I mean, some of these deals are probably not. You know, a few years ago, they wouldn't be deals, but that's just the world we live in now, right? <laughs> that it is. What do you hear from people who maybe have, for the first time, started following you and some of the deals or money they've been able to save? Yeah, to just say it's great because, you know, the most of the... So, so, so sometimes it's not even the deal so much as people just don't have the time to go through the flyers and are guilty of not doing it. And like I said before, I was guilty of not looking at flyers for a few years. You know, I didn't even pay no attention, but now it's kind of something you got to do. And if you're fortunate enough to live in an area where you can go to three or four stores, you, you probably save yourself a few dollars, right? No doubt about it. I mean, uh, I know people that would have been, say, for instance, customers of Sobeys and only Sobeys. And now with the Flyers, they may indeed do a grocery run that includes Walmart, Dominion, Sobeys, Coleman's, Costco, all at the same time. They would have bought all of those items at Sobeys, but no longer. Uh, so how long are you going to keep this up? Because it must take a bit of time. By the time you peruse the flyers and uh, note all the deals and then put together your, your Facebook post or pardon me, your Twitter post, it probably does eat up a bit of time. How much per week do you think you put into this? Yeah, I usually does it on Tuesdays and sits down, goes through flyers, either on Flip or whatever ones I don't get in person, I'll go on Flip. But like, it take an hour or so and just type it up. And going through the flyers is the most part, but again, like, I'm probably going to be doing it myself anyway, uh, you know, so why not just share it with people? And, yeah, that's that's the big thing. I'll keep doing it as long as, you know, people got interest in it. I got no problem doing it. It don't bother me one bit. <laughs> What's Flip? Flip is the app where you can get the flowers if you don't get them delivered to your door. Oh, right? I never even knew that existed. But, but again, you know, when I first started doing this, a couple people would say, you know you can use Flip, and I'm like, yeah, I can use, I do use Flip, but I'm sharing it with people because you still got to, go through the flyers on flipped or page by page, right? 
So as so, a person who used to not deal or read the flyers and get the deals, what do you think your forecasted savings have been, say, per month, just because you've now been a price-attentive shopper like I am now as well? Yeah, I'd say, like, if, if I make a decent grocery run every two weeks, so you probably could say, like I said before, depending on what you're buying and stuff and how much you're looking, 50 to 60 bucks a grocery trip. So, you know, you could probably save yourself 100 $110 a month if you're willing to put the time in and go around. And like I stress to a lot of people, Patty, like, I live in St. John's, so I got the luxury of being able to go to different stores. Like, I know people out around, you know, out around the Bay, say Bay Roberts, Carabinero, only got a couple options. But, we're, you know, if I live in St. John's and I can hit up Walmart, Sobeys, Dominion, no frills, all in the span of a 20-minute drive, just you might as well take advantage of it if you're willing and able, right? A hundred percent. And you're bang on by saying you have the access that many people in different parts of the province don't, which is things yeah. like the Big Feed Club and DRL providing some Costco drop-offs around the province I think has been helpful. And some pop-ups on behalf of food personnel have been helpful. But you've got to be where the action is and the options are. And, of course, we have that luxury here. Many people that listen to this program, they just don't have it. Okay, give us a shout-out here now as to where some of the best deals are for people who are going grocery shopping this afternoon. Well, everybody's been asking me about turkeys over the past couple of weeks. And uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, there are like Coleman's and Big Goods and uh, Sobeys and Foodland all got butter balls on for two forty nine a pound, which probably wasn't a good deal a couple of years ago, but I guess it's you know decent now. And uh, Dominion got fresh turkeys on for two forty nine a pound. But I also noticed, like mentioned, the Bay Roberts area, Powell's actually got turkey season turkeys on for two thirty nine a pound out in Powell's. So, and whenever I'm out, I'll tweet pictures if I see deals. Like Walmart got the thirty dollar turkeys. You know, they're all different sizes, but they're thirty dollar flat rate, right? Well, I think you're helping a lot of people. It's the first time we've spoke. We've communicated via Twitter every now and then. And hopefully uh, folks will give you a follow. So it's WalkingManNL is his Twitter handle. Are you any other uh, uh, social media venues as well? No, that's it for me. It's just the Twitter. That's that's enough. (laughs) But thanks for talking to me. Thanks for bringing it up a bunch of times, man. It's good to get the word out. And, you know, even though I consider what I'm doing a very small thing, but apparently if it saves people time and money, well, it's worth doing, right? Listen, bravo. Thanks a lot for what you're doing. I'll keep following and getting the deals. Yeah, man. Have a great holiday. You too, Chris. All the best. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Pleasure. Bye bye. Uh, Welcome, Man and Ellis. Saving us money. I love that. Let's go to line number two. Jeff, you're on the air. Yeah, Patty? Yeah. Um, you ever watch Ben Stein expelled? No intelligence allowed? No. Documentary? No, it happens. No. That's what the government is trying to do. They're trying to, the people that's not contributing to the world, uh, they're trying to starve them out. Malnutrition and stuff, right? But uh, that's not what I want to get at right now. That's not what I want to get at right now. Uh, the nurse practitioners, Patty. Uh, you call eight one one. What do you say it costs? Like forty five bucks or something? Fifty bucks? Eight one eight one one. The uh, cost per call is eighty two dollars, and after seventy two thousand, the the number goes down to between fifty nine and sixty two bucks. I think in that range. To see a doctor, the doctor bills MCP thirty seven dollars for routine in person appointment, and forty forty two or forty seven dollars for a virtual care with a cap of forty per day. Yep. So is there any difference between a nurse practitioner? Because I can go to town right now, cost me about $15 in gas, cost me $35 out of my pocket now to see the nurse practitioner, and I can get all my medications. But if I phone 811, like that girl was right, they'll ask you for your name, your MCP, and then they'll ask you for your prescriptions, and then they say, no, we can't give this to you. But I can go see a nurse practitioner, cost me $35, and I can get all of them. So it seems like that eight one one 
they want all your information first, and then you can't get nothing. Then you go see a nurse practitioner, pay $35, and you get all your prescriptions. Yeah, I mean, there's lots that nurse practitioners could do, no doubt about it. Now, many people, of course, are still of the mindset that the only healthcare professional they think can do what they need to have, have done is a doctor. When, in fact, between an LPN or a nurse practitioner and maybe more uh, roles for a pharmacist to play, we've got to spread the wealth around so we can ease the wait list and ease the burden that, you know, one sector of the healthcare system is uh, shouldering or not. So, I mean, 811, I know there was a requirement for some some phone number to go to for some healthcare advice because so many people were struggling and couldn't see a doctor. But now, when we know the numbers as to what they are, the biggest problem with all of that for me is if I call and they say, go see a doctor, then I go see a doctor. So the government paid $82 to Phone Med, who operates 811. Then they paid $37 to the doctor, as opposed to me just going to see the doctor to begin with and or out of pocket for a nurse practitioner in their private setup. We've kind of double dipped ourselves to the point where these are a lot of unnecessary dollars going out the door. Yes, that's what I'm getting. It seems like 811 is just useless because... Uh I like uh, I was seeing a nurse practitioner for the past year and a half paying $35 every time. Somebody told me if I phoned 811, it would go to MCP and it's free. So I phoned the 811, give them all my information. They said, nope, we're going to have a problem here, problem here, problem here. I said, well, this is just a waste of my time. I'm still going to have to go see the nurse practitioner. So like there's no difference between nurse practitioners. It seems like 811 doesn't want to do it, and they're charging almost twice as much. And I can go see the nurse practitioner instead of calling and it's cheaper and I get all my prescriptions. Yeah, people Seems like eight one one is just a grab. It could like, possibly be. Kill, are they trying to kill the medical care plan or something? Right, well, something to look into. Well no the government's on contract, so it's not phone med said, hey let's do this so we can decimate MCP. The government went out to the market with an RFP and this was the only company that responded. Okay. One more question. Sure. Right, goes. Um Diamond Guy. Yeah, diamond guy in Steamville. Uh, something kind of fishy, but I, like the contract was signed for doing those windmills, and is not even five minutes from the airport, and that's what he had bought. I was just wondering, like uh, turbines, the, the the wind turbines and the drones. I'm just wondering, is he building drones, or is that Germany, him and Germany together? Oh, it's, and it's two different people. The oh yes, but are they partners in it? No. It seems like there was a couple red flags went up about Diamond. Like, if I had that kind of money, I'd have somebody in that office instead of nobody. Yeah, no, but you're talking about two different people, two different companies, two different proposals. Uh, Carl Diamond and the Diamond Group, they're the people who said that they were going to buy Stephenville Airport, inject hundreds of millions of dollars, create thousands of jobs, and to manufacture those cargo drones. You're overlapping it, I think, with John Risley, who's the man behind World Energy GH2, the wind turbines, and the green hydrogen and ammonia plant in Stephenville. Yeah, be something to look into. It sounds fishy to me. I think you're going to see those uh, wind turbines being built right at the airport in Steamville. I don't think where, are they, where, where else are they going to build them? On the Port of Port Peninsula. Uh, that's where they're going to be putting them. Yes, because I'm uh, fi- I'm I, I live on the Port of Port Peninsula, right? I'm only like ten minutes from Steamville Airport. Okay. And uh, I haven't seen nothing being done yet about the wind turbines or anything else. And uh, I say when it starts. Like, he bought that airport, and all of a sudden, now, okay, there's wind turbines coming in. I say that's a spot 
this is a, some kind of a scam. I'm not sure what it is, and I don't want to say it because I don't really know all of it. Well, there are two different people, though. Like, I, I'm not sure what you're getting at. There might be lay-down yard capacity on the Steenville Airport land for post or pardon me, pre-construction of these wind turbines, but they're two different companies with two different plans, two different things altogether, right? Okay, yeah, well, we'll see how it rolls out anyway. Fair enough. <laughs> Have a good one, guys. Thanks, Jeff. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, go ahead and take a break. If you're in the queue, stay there. We'll get to you ASAP. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's see here. Let's go to line number five and say good morning to the Liberal member for Virginia Waters Pleasantville. He's the Minister of Environment, Climate Change, Labor, and Workplace. And now that's Bernie Davis. Minister Davis, you're on the air. Petty, thanks for having me on. Happy to have you on. Uh, I do want to ask you some questions based on the caller named Charlene earlier regarding Workplace NL and not abiding by the legislation as as described by Charlene. But I think you want to talk about the transitional support program before we get to that. Uh, no problem. Yes, yes, Petty. Uh, this past Monday, we uh, announced an expansion to our transitional support program. Uh, that's the program that we put in place in uh, May of uh, this past year. Um, Uh, sorry, in October of this past year to um, expand the coverage for small businesses to, um, I guess, bridge the gap for uh, the uh, increase in minimum wage for the minimum wage earners. So we've expanded that program now. Instead of it being 20 uh, uh, companies at 20 or less employees, it's now expanded to 100 or less employees. So that will greatly expand the businesses that could uh, apply for this program. And we've extended the application deadline to January 9th. uh, And I encourage businesses to uh, reach out and and apply. What's the program cost? With the new expansion, what does this all cost? Uh, we anticipate it'll be uh, less than five million uh, for the program to be administered, uh, based on uh, the minimum wage earners that are in the system, that, as we have it from StatsCan and, and other uh, agencies. So, what's the process? A simple application. What do they have to provide as a business owner? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty simple application. It just uh, it gives um, the maximum payout per employee is about a thousand dollars and forty a thousand and forty dollars per minimum wage earner. Um, and the businesses can apply for those, and they get 80% of the money uh, uh, up front after the application is completed. And then the final report that they would put in, they would get the remaining 20%, uh, you know, uh, closer to October 1st of uh, 2023. And we're on our path to fall of 23 at 15 bucks. Is that right? $15 per hour for minimum wage? Correct. Yeah. So okay. That was a recommendation of the minimum wage uh, review committee um, that came out. Uh, so it was an increase uh, in this past October, uh, this coming April, and then the next October in 2023. Okay. Now, before I run out of time and get to the news, I do want to talk about Charlene's call, and I think you did hear it. It was, you know, she quoted a bunch of chapter and verse or segments of the legislation that weren't being abided by, and consequently. They didn't get the compensation that they needed or deserved, ended up on the street, unable to pay bills all the way down the line. If Workplace NL is not abiding by the legislation, that is, should be the only guiding principle that is in front of them, how are they being able to do this? What's your role as the minister to ensure that everything that Workplace NL, which is created by a piece of legislation, is abided by said legislation? Well, absolutely, Patty. Uh, every piece of legislation that uh, governs Workplace NL is being followed by Workplace NL. Um, you know, um, I, I encourage individuals that uh, feel that they have not been treated fairly um, to reach out uh, to the appeal process, uh, like you mentioned, I think, to Charlene on your call, uh, to reach out to the review division uh, for Workplace NL. Um, they would look at it independently and, and view the uh, 
the uh, case um, with uh, with a clear set of eyes uh, and make sure the legislation was being uh, implemented uh, correctly. Okay, but she quite clearly, uh, you know, quoting pieces of the legislation that were not followed. You say they're all being followed, but Charlene tells a vastly different tale. Yeah, I can't speak to an individual case for sure, but what I can say is I encourage any caller that feels they've been uh, treated unfairly or didn't get the compensation they uh, think they require, uh, uh, deserve or, or uh, think they should be requiring to get uh, to reach out to the review division or reach out to their uh, their claims officer to start that process. I mean, that's what we've had uh, with uh, Workplace NL. We've made uh, some changes with Workplace NL through legislation, even in this fall, to make the process a little bit straightforward, more straightforward and, and clean up the legislation uh, uh, language and things around the Act. Uh, so we've done some of that stuff already. We're constantly looking at, uh, you know, statutory reviews every five years that we implement the recommendations, uh, those recommendations that come out of those. Not all of them, albeit, but we re- implement as many as we possibly can. I know that the this most recent stat review of 2019, we're working through that process. Um, the, the I think there's like some 40, 40 or so operational uh, changes that were they're being looked at through either the review division or workplace NL, and those are uh, under under way and in progress. You know, suggesting that people appeal, fair enough, and there is an appeal process. But wouldn't it be better for Workplace NL themselves and for people who need or deserve or qualify for compensation, that there was some sort of oversight to make sure that Workplace NL was doing exactly what they're charged to do and following the letter of the law versus putting the onus on individuals to go through the timeliness, the time factor of an appeal process. So shouldn't we start with the people who are administering the programs versus the people who are applying for the programs? Absolutely, Patty. I mean, my understanding and... uh I can't speak to the individual circumstances that you're you're talking about here now, but what I can say is that, uh, to the best of my knowledge, they're following every piece of legislation that uh, governs the Workplace NL Act. Uh, you know, um, I look forward to working with them and making improvements on the act as we deem necessary. But um, this this is an individual case that needs to be dealt with individually. And uh, if she has concerns or they have concerns to the family, I encourage them to reach out. My understanding uh, is that anybody that has those concerns get the opportunity to reach out on numerous occasions. And, and I, I've uh, I've forwarded information for people that have reached out to me in the past to, to Workplace NL and, and gotten uh, favorable responses uh, for those uh, individuals that uh, that needed uh, extra uh, clarification or wanted to be uh, transferred onto the review division, and that is exactly the way the legislation is written, Patty. It, it, it's not circumventing any piece of legislation. That's exactly how it's written. If someone feels that they need uh, to receive, uh, didn't receive the compensation they they uh, think they are owed. Well, then that's exactly what the review division is set up to do: to uh, look at the see if the legislation was. Uh, implemented the exact way it's supposed to be in this particular individual's case. And that's exactly what they do. Appreciate the time. Thank you, Minister. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. As uh, Minister Bernie Davis, uh, responsible for workplace and now talk about the transitional program for minimum wage support for small business. Before we get to the news, let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the Mayor of Victoria. That's Barry Dooley. Mayor Dooley, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well. How about you? I'm doing wonderful, thank you. I just uh, wanted to call this morning to your show because I know a lot of our listeners in our community are uh, familiar with your program, and I just wanted to announce that we uh, passed our municipal budget last night through council, and uh, very fortunate that we have no increases in any of our fees or our tax policy structure or anything, and we actually uh, decreased our mill rate by 1%. Uh, 
we dropped from 6.5 to 5.5, which actually means that we're going to give our residents a decrease in their taxes for the year of 2023. And that's very welcoming news to the uh, residents. Of course, everybody knows that these past couple of uh, years has been difficult for people, especially with inflation rates and price risings on uh, pretty much everything that we purchase. And I want to thank our uh, staff for managing our uh, finances to get us in the position we're in. But most of all, I would like to thank the residents for paying up their taxes and keeping their confidence in us to be able to do this. So we're very pleased to announce that our mill rate is dropping and the residents will benefit from that in 2023 with the tax decrease. How were you able to achieve that? Did you have an uptick on the revenue side or some cuts uh, in-house? What happened? Because the municipalities that are reporting their budget outcomes, you know, there's some holding the line. There's some increase in water fees, recreation fees in this city. Mount Pearl increased their uh, property taxes to their residents, whether it be industrial, commercial, and or individual. So how are you able to achieve a hold the line and even a decrease? Yeah. Well, Patty, we've been very fortunate. Uh, We were in a position a number of years back that we – weren't so fortunate and uh, the council of the day decided to take on a major uh, debt with some loans and we have paid them off over the last number of years we've paid all this off as a matter of fact now we are operating with a very uh, comfortable budget with absolutely no loans actually but i mean i have to thank of course our municipal and federal governments as well for their infrastructure and funding multi-capital works and stuff like that that you know we've we've managed very well we've put a lot of infrastructure in our town we're pretty much 98 percent serviced in regards to water and sewer on uh, i'm going to say at least 90 plus percent of our roads are paved we have a new depot that we just built over the last couple of years for our staff and our equipment we have pretty much all new equipment we're we're really sitting in a good place and that's all due to the residents keeping their taxes paid on time. And so we're passing the buck back to them and giving them some savings, you know. And it's great management from our team. Moving that's to Victoria. overall team. I'm looking for a place in Victoria. Well, you're more than welcome. And anybody who's listening, we'll take you any day. Listen, I appreciate the update. I'm sure that's music to the residents' ears out in the town of Victoria. A little bit of break on property tax is not going to be the common outcome for the vast majority of municipalities this budget season. Uh, thanks for this, Mayor Dooley. Appreciate the time. Well, thank you very much for your time on your show. And I want to wish all of the listeners out there uh, hopefully a healthy and prosperous 2023 and a great Christmas. Same to you, sir. All the best. Okay. You have a good day. You too. Thank you. As Barry Dooley, he's the mayor of Victoria. Good news on their budget front. That's not bad at all. All right, let's take a break. Uh, Fred's here to talk about Bill C-21. That's the gun control legislation, which is, in my own opinion, is deeply flawed. Uh, Norm wants to talk about workers' comp and the legislation governing that. FFAW nominations, and Joanne's going to report yet another scam so we can help, help protect you being uh, separated from your hard-earned cash. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Norman, you're on the air. Hello. Hello there. Yeah, I want to talk about uh, workers' compensation legislation. Okay. I heard uh, Mr. Davis on there talking about it. Wow, I was awestruck about uh, how little he knew. Um, The workers' compensation legislation represents the worker and the compensation board and the employer fairly well. It's not the workers' compensation legislation, I feel. 
The issue is the implementation of the legislation. What I mean by that is um, most decisions coming out of the compensation board are basically what I call an emphasis mine opinion of how they interpret the legislation. It's not a legal interpretation of the legislation. Um, same thing with W. Curd and the Internal Review Division. Um, you know, if you go through the process, same thing comes comes back. It's how they perceive the legislation. It doesn't matter what legal precedent you put forward, like Breen or Pomeroy versus workers' compensation or a fiduciary obligation. Um, all these arguments are dismissed. And the point of the matter is, is that any relationship between an injured worker and the compensation board, there's what's called a fiduciary obligation. Now, that's Canadian law. And what fiduciary obligation means is that no one in, in that relationship should be prejudiced. So the compensation board does not uphold their fiduciary obligation um, in, by no means. And, you know, I made this argument to every entity in government, the citizens rep, um, the OIPC, the minister, uh, you name it, I've gone there, the Human Rights Commission. Specifically, I've had a broken neck for 20 years, and I've not been allowed to know it was broken. Now, I've, pro I've gone through the workers' compensation legislation and the process many, 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 many times. And the system just does not work. Firstly, uh, the workers' compensation legislation indicates that EN20 and Procedure 2600, it's the compensation board's responsibility to ensure the records they are getting are correct. But they don't do that. And Can you give me an example so, of that so I can have a better understanding? Well, um, there are lots of examples of that. Um, just because a doctor sends in a report, um, I, I'll again go back to my situation. I have a broken neck. I was diagnosed with a cervical radiculopathy. Okay, my neck's been fractured for 20 years. You can see it on the radiology. The compensation board must ensure that the report from the the doctor is correct, and they do that by a medical consultant, and they do that by collecting all the correlating clinical evaluations that are conducted by the medical system. So when they review a claim, they're supposed to take the opinion of the doctor, weigh it against, and it comes in the way on weighing of evidence, weigh it against the clinical evaluations. And then they use their, they're supposed to use their medical consultant to correlate what the doctor is saying versus what the clinical evaluations are, are saying. So none of this be done. Uh, you can argue that legislation up and down until the cows come home. And what happens is that the compensational board will come forward with a, with a emphasis mine opinion. 
a decision based on how they feel the legislation states. And it doesn't matter what legal precedent you put forward. It doesn't matter if you put forward um, photographic evidence correlating, um, you know, other opinions. Uh, you know, I've gone to the United States. I've even gone to Germany and had a company over there wanting to help me. And I've been offered multidisciplinary assessments to identify this. And the compensation board flat out refuses to help me out here. Now, under a fiduciary obligation, I have an accepted claim. They have an obligation to ensure my health is not prejudiced and my situation in their, in our relationship is not prejudiced. But they do not do that. And that's the situation with that young lady. She'll never be able to argue against them because they don't interpret the legislation as it is written. They interpret it as they feel it's written. And that's the whole problem. So the minister is way at lunch here. He has no idea what he's talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, I'd invite him to go and listen to my, my W. Kurd, um, um hearing is recorded. I invite you to go in and listen to it. Read it. The arguments, the arguments that I made are, you like, you wouldn't be able to um, get past it, but it doesn't work. And that's the situation is the people are in because no one respects that injured workers, you know, everybody looks at injured workers as recluse or, and no one picks up the situation, but people are being harmed here. And, um, on all fronts. And, um, you know, I've been living with a broken neck for 20 years and not allowed to know I got it. Um, I don't know why I'm alive, but I've been seen by just about every physician in Eastern Health, neurologists, neurosurgeons, um, respirologists, you name it, I've seen them. And no one told me. So bizarre. So, now, Charlene it's did. It's not bizarre. It's it's reality, and um, you know, the last consult I had with a physician in Newfoundland was in June. Um, yeah, he told me, you know, you know, you're exactly right. You have all this wrong with you. But he hangs up the phone and doesn't call the medical report. So, you know, someone needs to open up the books on the compensation board. Um, we need a, you know, we need an independent uh, investigation into what's going on there, right? And um, until until somebody opens up and sees the reality of what's going on inside those doors, as I, you know, as I see them, and um, and, and have experienced them, and I represent a lot of the other injured workers. Um, uh, under the Marystown Shipyard Families Alliance. And we're seeing the same things. And the citizens rep is ignoring us. Um, the 
the um, the minister is ignoring us. Um, you know, everybody's ignoring us because we don't speak in public. Um, and um, this is the first time I ever spoke in public, and uh, the second time I spoke in public. And um, it's, you know, it's someone needs to open up the books in the compensation board. Uh, as I said, the Human Rights Commission won't take it on. Citizens Rep refuses. Um, w occurred, same thing. Um, you know, and uh, anyway. Well, I'm glad you took the opportunity to speak publicly on this program this morning about it. Uh, Charlene did send me the follow-up email. I will spend some time trying to digest it after the show this morning. We will try to get someone in a leadership position at Workplace and Elder come on and speak to your concerns, your comments, your case, Charlene's, and other stories that inevitably will pour in because that's what happens on the show. Something gets brought up, and all of a sudden it piques the interest of so many other people in similar life circumstances. They send me their stories, so I'll try to read them all and try to get down to the brass tacks and figure out what's going on and how it's impacting people like yourself, Norman. I appreciate making time for the show this morning, though. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for your time. Anytime. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Okay, still got to get to a break, but please, for those in the queue, we want to talk to you, and we'll do it right after this. Don't go away. Oh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Peter, you're on the air. Yes, uh, good morning, Patty. Uh, Patty, I'd like to wish uh, yourself and uh, your producer, David, and your staff to a VOCM a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I'd just like to take a minute to... uh, Say for all the people out there, the volunteers, whether it's the food bank, uh, Salvation Army gathering place, and places for abused and battered women, that's just some. Now there's many more, but I don't have them all. I'd like to wish all of them a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And uh, I'd like for them to do their best, regardless of uh, stripe or denomination, uh, to try and uh, keep Christ in Christmas. You know, like uh, I just like to say that. and. Uh, and it's very meaningful work that you and your staff do, and it's very meaningful work all those volunteers do. You know, like to help other people in the, such hard times. So I just like to say that. But uh, if uh, if I can, I just like to move on to the the reason I phoned this morning. Uh, I, I phoned like it, well, most people know that I am a fish harvester, and uh, you know tomorrow. Uh, the FFAW the, the starts the, the, the nominations uh, for the new president. And uh, the more I'll, I'd like for everybody to consider that if they know of somebody, you know, approach them and see if they want to run for the president of, of the FFAW, regardless if it's in, they're industrial or in the offshore sector, or a fish harvester, or, or whatever the case may be, whether you're in a brewery, a hotel, or an oil tanker, a drag, or whatever, you know, like you're a fisherman uh, under 40 or over 40 feet. You know, it's uh, very important uh, to uh, for people to, to be able to, to choose, you know, who they, uh, who they want to represent them. And uh, I'm not critical this morning at the FFAW, but I think the procedure that they follow and what they've done again this time in particular, and I've been sure Vice President Tony Doyle and a Merry Christmas to Tony and his family, and, uh, you know, like uh, coming out and uh, endorsing uh, Greg Pretty uh, right off the bat, you know, like, 
I guess it may have deterred other people from running. But, you know, at the end of the day, I'm hoping that the Inshore Council will have an open mind if somebody do run, you know. Pick the best person, not the person that's been there, like like uh, Harry Pretty, not Harry Pretty, uh, Greg Pretty, and, uh, and you know, like, uh, he's been there since 79, so if he wasn't a president in 79, how come, since then, the last 40-plus years, all of a sudden, he's the best thing to slice bread, you know? I know people in there, Patty, uh, from uh, Port of Graves, been around the table for a long time. I know people in there, and I've had a reason to be in Banavesta, and not everybody is uh, happy with the decision, or, well, endorsing them. And uh, and I, I know people uh, who have been around the table from up in the Bjorn and uh, St. John's area, and... Uh, and, you know, maybe Tony Dodd himself, you know, and, uh, instead of just coming out and uh, and endorsing uh, Greg Pretty without, uh, you know, I, at least I think the executive and the inshore council members could, should have consulted with the people who voted for him and uh, put them in office around that table before you'd come out and make a decision just to take somebody on, you know, slide them in under the door. Uh, Jason Spingle, I'd vote for Jason Spingle, I'd say that publicly, but I would have rather if he went in with a vote than just shoved in there, just the same as Robert Kagan was there before him. And that's how uh, Keith Sullivan started off, halfway during the term, and uh, it seemed like on and on it goes. So, like, uh, I think they should be more open with their members, and uh, I think there should have been a vote, there's two years left. And I think all members should have had the right to elect the president. But isn't that what's happening? Don't members in good standing have an opportunity to vote for Mr. Pretty or anyone else who puts their name for it? No, it's the inshore council and uh, and uh, I, I guess it's the non-paid executive of, uh, of the FFAW. Uh, I think there's seven of them total, right? But uh, that's including, I think, I'm pretty well sure of seven executive members geographically for Newfoundland and Labrador. And, uh, and I think there's probably around uh, maybe 20 inshore council members. I think it's 28 total that will be voting on this, not the, the members in good standing like myself. You know, like, uh, you know, there, there is good people out there. And, uh, but... Uh, I think that uh, they should have been encouraged to run rather than deterred from running. That's that's my opinion on that, you know. But I do, I would like to say to all houses across Newfoundland and Labrador and all industrial sectors and offshore, you know, put your heads together and see if you can find somebody that's really good and would would make a good difference in the, in the leadership of the FFAW as president. That's what I would say. And I don't think I was negative in any way, or I didn't mean to be. But that's the way I would like to see it done, and that's the way harvesters would like to see it done. And now, when you get somebody in there, you know, like, how do you get them out? And like I said, if you weren't the president since 1979, and, uh, you know, how, how come, like, all of a sudden, you know, the, the executive... Uh, just let them in or under the door because there's people on the executive that I know personally that that probably would make a good president. They'd have to probably give up fishing, but 
that's the way I see it, you know. But that's only one. But the membership should have had the right to vote on this. And it's wrong. And it's democracy at its worst, rather than at its best. Anyway, that's all I got to say, Patty. And uh, and thanks for taking me, call. And I guess we may be talking to you with possibility, good good Lord willing, that uh, I'll talk to you in 2023. I look forward to it, Peter. Merry Christmas to you and yours. All the best. Thank you. You too. Bye. Uh, Dave, will I get the phone scam on here before we go? Yeah, let's do that. Let's go to line number seven. Joanne, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. So uh, I wanted to talk about a possible phone scam. I'm pretty sure it is going to be one. But uh, about two days ago, my phone rang. I said, hello, and this... I'm sorry, there was a little bleep in the uh, phone in our connection. Go right ahead. What happened? And this uh, really nice gentleman, what about uh, like a... South Asian accent, but not a heavy one, started speaking to me as if he knew me. And he said, uh, hello, how are you? I said, I'm good. He said, how are you today? I said, um, I, don't, I don't know you. And he said, yes, I, yes, you do. Uh, I said, how? And he said, um, your number came to me in a dream. I said, okay. And uh, he's, and he started to talk as if I knew him, but I knew immediately that this was some kind of a scam. He said that he, uh, uh, I said when I didn't know him, he tried to uh, persist, and he was really good. I can't remember half the stuff, but uh, he was really good. And uh, he said he knew me from uh, past life. At that point, I said, I don't know. I don't do past lives, and I hung up. However, here's where I feel that some people might, especially in, the, in our province here, because we're very nice people. There's a lot of older um, demographic and a lot of people who might be feeling somewhat lonely. And these people on the other end, this gentleman almost had me for a second, for a second. The way he spoke to me and me being polite only for I'm not really lonely or anything like that. I think I might have fallen for it. I think I might have given him another two or three minutes of my time. In that two or three minutes, I may have fallen for something like he might have said, yes, we need to get together, and the money could have come then. It's just I shut it down at the moment he said that about past lives. I knew then that we were going somewhere that but some people might believe that. Some people might be polite, uh, you know, t- t- too polite or overly polite and not want to hang up on him. And these people, like he, whoever is hiring this group of individuals, are hiring people to, that seem to have, be intuitive. They seem to be able to read people. Like, you know, when you hear somebody's voice, you have an idea how old they are. These, this person is very good. So if he is one that is representing many who are, and if this is now a new scam, it is going to be a difficult for anyone who's in a position of just feeling a bit lonely, a bit vulnerable. These people are going to be good at uh, marking those that demographic. So if you get that call, and it, I don't know what your feeling is on past lives, those who will receive that call, but just be aware I think it's a scam. <laughs> if anyone says their number came to them in a dream, that's a pretty right. big red flag for me. Yeah. And, you know, you're 100% right. Some of these scammers and their organizations, they have got it perfected. Yeah. They have figured it out, and they can probably nuance the conversation on the fly when they get someone who's receptive on the other end. Yeah. So I try to bring forward whatever scams people tell me about, just to give some forewarning to folks out there that, 
And you make a great point. It's this time of year. It's uh, certain age groups that might be a little bit more vulnerable than others, and they don't want to be unkind or uh, impolite. And the next thing you know, they've gone down a rabbit hole that might see some money missing from their bank account in short order. So I always appreciate when people bring forward these warnings because I guarantee you, you're protecting at least one person from falling for it. And I believe that, like, our seniors are particularly vulnerable because we're so nice. And our seniors are really nice people. And they love to, I find, that they just, they're not people to hang up on people real quick. So I, I like that uh, you're letting the seniors know this for sure. 100%. And hopefully it spares at least somebody out there. And I pr- I'm pretty sure it does. And I yeah. really appreciate you making time for the show, Joanne. All right. Thank you. Have a good day. Very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, Fred, you're still there. Good on you. Bill C21, how else are we doing on the phone there, David? When we come back, Fred's up to talk about gun control. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one. Good morning, Fred. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you this morning? Doing very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Good, good. Thank you. Good. Patty, I wanted to talk a little bit about... uh, C21 this morning. Sure. Um, this is a very emotional topic, mainly because uh, our Prime Minister and his ministers seem to concentrate on the emotional part and tear at every other's heartstrings every time they talk about it. But they, they don't say anything about the consequences. Now, a few facts might be in order here. For instance, 17.3% of uh, voting age Newfoundlanders are licensed firearm owners. Uh, the firearms industry in Canada is a $15 billion industry. There's 4,500 businesses who rely on firearms for their operations. And there's 1,400 rod and gun clubs uh, that rely very heavily on uh, handguns and the other uh, bands' firearms for their membership. So any, any gun that was restricted can only be used at a, a licensed uh, range. So that means all the AR-15s that are gone and all the firearms that are gone pretty well decimates the membership of all the rod and gun clubs. Now, on top of that, there's 60,000 people employed in this industry. Uh, (laughs) Many of these have already lost their their jobs, and many more are losing them by thousands every day. there's more shooters in Canada, the people who are participating in the shooting industry, one way or another. There are more of those than there are people who participate in hockey, more than they participate in golf, more than participate in soccer or tennis, and many other popular sports. Uh, this <laughs> It's hard to draw a comparison between playing minor soccer or hockey or tennis or golf and shooting a firearm, though, isn't it? Why? 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 I mean, it's, it's a sport. It's a sport that uh, people enjoy. They spend time at the range, uh, talking to their other, other sportsmen, participating with other sportsmen, competing with other sportsmen. So it's a sport like any other sport. It's just that, it's just that we shoot paper instead of... <laughs> And play pigeons instead of uh, uh, hitting a puck or hitting a tennis ball or uh, hitting a soccer ball, you know, or a golf ball. It's 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 very similar, actually. 
Okay, so I do, and I have admitted many, many times, I don't own a firearm. I don't know all the differences between the different firearms. I tried to talk to people who do, so the bill seems fatally flawed to me. Uh, but let's just say if they get it closer to right than it currently stands, wouldn't those who are enthusiasts and they are members of Rod and Gun Clubs, won't they just use weapons that are available or firearms that are available and continue to shoot? That is a great question. Now, let's let's uh, take this analogy and look at, compare it with golf. Okay, if you play golf, you have a bag full of clubs. So if somebody comes along and says, look, you're no longer allowed to use any club except your putter to play golf. Now, how many people do you think would keep on playing golf? Well, they've actually, you know, if if that's the analogy, they've made changes to what kind of clubs you can use, even even since I became a golfer. Lots of changes. Absolutely, but have they banned them? Some of them and, are. Some of them are. Yeah. And giving you nothing. It, well, well, you see, there are there are so many uh, there are so many shooting sports. There are hunting uh, hunters, rather. There are uh, handgun shooters who have a number of comp- uh, competitive uh, organizations that they belong to, and they have regular meetings and regular com- competitions. And then there are uh, shotgun shooters who have, uh, I think, three or four different. Uh, uh, types of uh, events that they participate in, and they have competitions. And it's also an Olympic sport. So if you, ha- if you ban handguns, then we will never be able to compete in the Olympics again because you have to be, according to this new uh, thing, you have to be a, a, part- a member of the Olympic organization, the Olympic team, in order to keep a handgun. Well, how can you get to be a member if you never shot one before and you can't practice? Wouldn't a sensible sure? Wouldn't a sensible amendment to legislation, you know, accommodate sports shooting, but every other ownership of handguns is prohibited? Period in the country. I mean, those are the types of things where accommodations and understanding what the bill actually achieves versus what it's hopefully going to achieve. That's the two. That's the big difference here between how the liberals have uh, structured this current bill versus what would be, I guess, the phrase is more appropriate. So. Wouldn't that be acceptable to people like yourself, that if, if you have a handgun and you keep it at the Rod and Gun Club where you're the only place you're allowed to shoot it, to become competent, to compete, and or to do it for recreation, would that be an acceptable amendment if it came to pass in your mind, Fred? Well, okay, let, let's put it this way. The only pe- reason people have handguns is for sports shooting and competition. And the only place they can, they can do it is at a, a, a registered license range. Now, if you take all these handguns and have them stored at the, the range, how long do you think it will be before somebody comes along with a, a backhoe or a front-end loader or something, smashes through the side of the, the uh, clubhouse, and steals all the handguns? Well, people have stolen handguns from people's own personal residence, though. Yes, but they don't know where they are. So, but if you say that they have to be kept at the, at the range, everybody knows where they are. So all well, Steve's know where to get them. All the criminals know exactly where to go to get a handgun. Yeah, I've, I've heard that go argument. The range. I've heard that argument uh, a lot. But, I mean, for instance, the criminals all know where the money is at the bank. They know where the smokes are at Marie's. They know all these things anyway. You're telling me there's not a, an actual way to protect and to store safely and securely a firearm at a rod and gun club? Well, they can't, they can't securely store the money at the banks. I mean, they, they take uh, echoes and front-end loaders and bang, bash through the banks and steal the... Uh, the uh, uh, the cash machines. So, you know, why would they do anything different at the at the Rod and Gun Club? 
Yeah, I, and, and I, again. not only that, you'd have to have a huge vault, which would cost way more than any uh, any any place could uh, could possibly afford. He'd have that armed guards around the clock. And, you know, it's uh, it's it's not even feasible to think about. Yeah, I'm, look, I, I understand the concerns with the bill. I'm not so sure the issue about storage is uh, going to be a be all or an end all or change many people's minds, but. You know, Canadians are in favor of gun control. This bill doesn't work. It's certainly not where I would start. It's very much like the cart before the horse when we're talking about public safety and access to whatever type of firearm. But, uh, yeah, they've got to get this, again, I use the same phrase, closer to right than it currently stands. Yeah, and the best way to do that is forget about it all. But, but uh, uh, the big, another big thing is that we had a meeting at the Rod and Gun Club there the other night, uh, and we took a a piece of paper, passed it around the room, and everybody wrote on it exactly how much this latest uh, round of gun control is going to cost them. The average was $35,000 per person. People have $35,000 worth of firearms that are on the current banned list? Absolutely. Um, and, well, I mean, you can take one firearm that's worth fifteen, twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars $25,000. Uh, there are there are, hang, there are guns out there that are worth $150,000, just one single. And, and these are all being banned. And, and <laughs> um, their collectors have been collecting these things for years because they appreciate in value. And we're talking about substantial amounts of dollars. So anyone who's been collecting for a few years uh, has a few very expensive guns. So $35,000 is very easy to see. The average handgun, the average firearms, licensed firearm owner in Canada, the average, owns 26 guns. Okay. I don't know where that number comes from, and I have no idea how many guns anybody owns, but... Statistics Canada. Uh, fair enough. <laughs> That's, I try to trust uh, Stats Canada because I get a lot of data from that organization. Okay. So do collectors use all of their guns or the firearms that they collect? Like, is it not just something they, they store and display in their home, or they actually, you know, take one this day when they go to the Rod and Gun Club and go, go through their entire collection to use them? Well, no, because collectible uh, firearms uh, are collectible because they have limited use. So you're not going to take that up to the range every every weekend and fire it uh, 150 rounds or so through, through the thing because you're going to reduce its value. So, no, Collectible firearms are are just are collectible for the most part. So aren't they protected shop, though? Shop selling. Aren't they protected no. given the fact that some you, some are, but not all. Okay, how many members at the Rod and Gun Club here locally? Uh, I believe it's around twelve hundred. Oh wow, it's a big number. Yeah. Uh, Fred, any of the final thoughts from you, sir, before I take my last break of the morning? Uh, well, here's the big one. There's sixty thousand people employed in. The, the firearms industry in Canada. Now, if you support these firearms bans, you're throwing thousands and thousands of these people out of work. And you're also decimating a $15 billion industry, which Canada needs every dollar's worth of industry that they have right now in this uh, time of uh, financial <laughs> whatever, <laughs> financial stress. So, yes, uh, the the human the human part of this thing is is two is two sided, but our government only wants to show one side. Now the people involved in this industry 
are suffering. They're suffering individual financial loss. They're losing their jobs, uh, and they're they're losing their their. Some people call it a hobby, but it's a sport. They're losing their sport that they've been enjoying for most of their lives, actually. I mean, I'm over 80 years old. I've been at this since I was 11 years old. I appreciate the time and your thoughts this morning, Fred. Thank you, sir. You're kindly welcome, Fred. Take good care. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number three. Mary, you're on the air. Hi, Mary. Uh I'm just calling in about a lady phoned in yesterday about uh, a Facebook page mm-hmm. for the Ukrainians. Yep. Well, I hopped on to that last night, and what a, what a Facebook page. It's just awesome. What did you see? Uh, I saw a lot of sweets, Patty. <laughs> I'm telling you, oh, my goodness. There's a, a fellow out in uh, Heart's Delight, and he's got his name is uh, Vita Prokopenko. And uh, the name of his place is, uh, what's it called now? Borscht Ukrainian Cafe. I think that's, yeah. It's anyway, it's uh, Borscht Ukrainian Cafe. And you should see the stuff that he bakes. Like there's cinnamon rolls, all kinds of stuff. And you just want to, like, take the eat it right off the page, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you. And there's another lady, I think she's probably in town in St. John's. Her name is Hannah. And she's looking for a job uh, as well. Um, you know, she does a lot of uh, cakes and stuff like that, too. But um, a few other things I was noticing, I'm just hoping anyone's listening, if they have transportation, uh, if they could get onto that Facebook page and um, may- maybe to provide the transportation. Cause some, like, there's Ukrainians on this page and there's Newfoundlanders on this page so like a Ukrainian will get on and say okay like I need this and then a Newfoundlander will write and say okay I have this but there's no way of getting it to them because the Ukrainians are not driving they don't have cars of course they've only just arrived and stuff so um, if anyone is listening if they can get on that page and make a connection between uh, who has the stuff and who needs the stuff that would be useful I I haven't seen the page myself, like I admitted to that one caller. I don't do much on Facebook uh, anymore these days. I'm pretty much all consumed with, enough with uh, Twitter for the show. But right. I'm glad that it's being helpful to so many, and people are wanting to help, right? Whether it be the born and bred Newfoundlander or Labradorian and or a newcomer to the province. So I'm glad you had a good experience with the page. Yes. Yeah, so, um, is it okay i just read it off there? Sure. Okay, it's Newfoundland, and there's the symbol for and. So Newfoundland and Labrador help backslash host for Ukrainians. And if people are interested, they should check it out and help if possible. Yes, and if you're ever out in Hearts Delight, bring a few shopping bags with you and get some stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks a lot, Mary. Okay, Patty, have a and Merry Christmas to you and your family as well. The same to yours. Thank you, Mary. Thanks. Take Bye care. now. Bye-bye. Uh, last word goes to the line five. Many year on the year. Yes, Patty. I uh, called this morning mainly about uh, the Mount Pearl budget, but I first want just to make a quick comment. Uh, the, the cost of living relief checks, the government put uh, puts numbers on for you to call, and I've been calling now for the past week because my son and my husband both have received theirs, but uh, Lowe's paying one in the house didn't. 
and uh, I've called, and they're supposed to get back to me, but uh, it's been over a week now, and I haven't received a call at all, right? And I'm the biggest fear I have, Patty, is that we've had things stolen from our mailbox. We've had things in this year particularly, like cards and that kind of stuff has been taken, and I'm worried that somebody might have got a hold of the check, right? But what I called for now this morning, Patty, is the Mount Pearl budget. And I wanted to tell you, because I haven't heard anything about it, but I wanted to say how disappointed I am that I was listening to somebody on CBC last night, and they said that our taxes will be increased by 250 I thought they said, dollars a year, which is over $20 a month. And I know they're having a money problem. But, uh, honest to God, uh, when I look at some of the things, $4.6 million to projects partially supported by federal and provincial programs, 500000 to the baseball field. You know, some of these things, Patty, could be put off for another year because I don't think... People think Mount Pearl people are making good money in there. But the food bank... Uh, in here is in overdrive and uh, like everywhere else eh? and uh, I'm wondering why in the world would they put a $20 a month because it's not just the taxes it's everything has gone up this year insurance you name it right and I don't know how anybody else in Mount Pearl feels about it. And I'm not even sure they're aware that uh, this about $20 a month is going to go up. And I'm sure this fee's gone up too, eh? And I noticed that we're the only ones in here, really, that put their mill rate up from uh, 7.1 to 7.7. And I think if they had looked through their budget after a a strike that lasted over 10 weeks, they should have had a bit of a savings, I would think. I was a little surprised, too. Spending is up in Mount Pearl $4 million this year. Increase yeah. in spending 4.3% in St. John's as well. And they held a line on property taxes, but uh, an increase in my water fee, $45, yeah, r- recreational programs. Was, yeah, that's what I was expecting, Patty, the increase in the water tax, because we get that every year. But I didn't expect a mill rate increase. And I think that uh, when we put these people in, uh, Patty, I don't think any of us were aware that they're go- their first year in, they were going to have... It's almost like uh, they're insensitive to how people are feeling, you know? Because everybody in Newfoundland surely must realise that any kind of a tax increase at all is too much. It's a I tough... Mean, Tough year to see any increases, even though they've been hit with the inflationary pressures yeah. that we all feel as individuals and businesses. Many, it's uh, 12.01.35. Yeah. I'll have to leave it there. You can join us again, though, if you want to follow up. Yes, and you have a great Christmas, Patty, you and your family. You too, Minnie. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, that's it for today, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.